0: It's 1983! This is a special episode of the Player Missile Podcast, and I'm Rob, your host. This is part two, this is the continuation of the 8-bits versus 5200 special series. In the last episode, part one, we went over some of the background of the development of the 5200, went over some of the hardware, the differences between the 8-bits and the 5200, and then the magazine coverage that we could find of the 1982 magazines that mentioned the 5200, including a bunch of new magazines that I don't normally cover in the podcast. So in this part two, we're going to cover 1983, and I'm going to go through all the magazines and print sources that I could find that reference the 5200, and also point out any of the references to the 8-bit computers that I can find in those magazines that I don't normally cover, as well as all the fun, interesting, cool articles that catch my eye, and yeah, I'll summarize those. There's a lot to cover in this episode, so let's get to it. The first thing we're going to look at is the something directly from Atari. It's the first quarter of 1983 P.O.P., Point of Purchase, brochure. And it is a six-page thing, looks like it's probably glossy paper. It lists three games, Centipede, Kicks, and Countermeasure. Centipede and Kicks obviously were arcade conversions, and Countermeasure is an original game. And it also includes a page on the system itself. On each of the pages, it has a description of, of the thing, like on the Centipede page, it says, the Atari 5200 Centipede cartridge is nearly identical to the arcade version, which became the most successful Atari coin video game of 1982. The 5200 Centipede features a slithering centipede, a mushroom-laying flea, a pesky spider, and all of the colorful excitement that helped make the original version an arcade classic. Trackball controller option, CX-5215, estimated availability for cartridge 21583. And it has a screenshot, and then below it it says Marketing Rationale, and the text there says, The Atari 5200 Centipede brings the colorful high-resolution graphics fast-paced action, and fantastic sound effects of the arcade into the home. Based on the phenomenal success of its coin-operated counterpart, the Atari 5200 home version of Centipede is sure to be a top seller. And on the left side of the page, it, has, it says POP, and then it says easel card, poster, mobile, and button. I guess these are things you can decorate the store with or have your employees wear the button. The page for the Super System lists a few extra stuff. It has a stickers, spec sheet, and catalog. Anyway, it says Countermeasure is also available $215.83, and Kix is available $315.83. It doesn't have any prices. I assume probably the price list was the same as what we discovered in the last episode. And the last page is the order form. It says it lists the Atari 5200 console, the only one that's available now, and you can choose what you want to order. And apparently this is just for ordering the, the POP materials, not the actual units themselves. Because it doesn't list the re- uh, requested quantity for any of the, like the actual cartridges or the console itself. It's just the, you know, the promotional materials you would put up in your store. And it says, note, no POP will be available for the introduction of 5200 Defender and 5200 Real Sports Football in January. It says, mail completed form to Atari Inc. 1399 Moffett Park Drive, Sunnyvale, California, 94086. The first magazine we'll look at is Video Games for January 1983. In the December issue, they said the the 5200 profile would be in this magazine, but it turns out it's not. It's going to be in the next issue. There are a few references to the 5200, however. They have a holiday gift guide section. You know, this being the the January issue, it still would come out sometime in December. So it said the long-awaited Atari 5200 is finally here. Play updated and enhanced versions of Pac-Man, Super Breakout, Space Invaders, Galaxian Missile Command, and Defender. And that the arcade sensation Centipede is here, plus the 400-800 hit Star Raiders. It said baseball, football, and soccer are next. And in the same section, it shows some Atari t-shirts and baseball caps that are available. It says order through the Atari club that anyone can order from. And it has a bunch of other things. It references a lot of the systems available, and little knickknacks for each. The only computer that's shown in this little section is the Commodore 64. Boo. In an article called SoftSpot, it says a few of Ken Usten's favorite games, and it includes Pac-Man for the 5200. It says this is a reprint from the book, Ken Usten's Home Video 83, The 20 Best New Games and How to Beat Them, plus five great classics. And in this little review of the 5200's Pac-Man, it says Atari's previous attempt and ad- adaptation of the arcade game for the VCS just didn't work. But this one does. It says, for those of you into numbers, I'd estimate the 5200 Pac-Man has about 80% of the authenticity of the original game. I'd give the VCS version a 35-40%. to Since says, Pac-Man looks like himself again. The ghosts are four different colors and turn in a nice dark blue when vulnerable. Each board is identified with a symbol. The sounds of the game have been reproduced faithfully. There are even intermissions. Now for the bad news, the 5200 joystick does not allow you to accurately maneuver Pac-Man. The key I found to operating it is to position the joystick exactly in one of the four positions. If the joystick is in between those positions, Pac-Man may not move at all. Or he may move east when you want him to go north. This 90 degree disparity at worst will cause you to lose a man when you're in a tight spot. So mixed review, I guess. You know, positive on the game itself, but negative on the controllers. In the Hard Sale column by Michael Blanchett, it says, ColecoVision's well worth the wait, and it has a pretty positive review of the ColecoVision. And that'll be kind of the theme of this 1983 episode, is the ColecoVision versus the 5200. And there's some fun letters of the editor that we'll get to, with the rabid fans on either side kind of having at it. And even today, there's still some of that going on. When I posted the episode, and sort of announced it on Twitter, uh, Maurice Molyneux linked to a piece that he wrote, you know, in the nineties, I think comparing the ColecoVision and the 5200s, the hardware, you know, like a, a really in-depth look at how the hardware compared and what was, you know, more advanced than the other. And I thought it was a pretty fair look, even if it was from the perspective of an Atari user. So, you know, more details on the Atari side, because that's what, you know, they know better, but still quite a, you know, in-depth look at the video display processor of the ColecoVision, which it turns out is the same processor used in the TI-994A. And so its graphics are 256 by 192. It has, like, a lot more sprites available than than we do on the 8-bits, up to 32 sprites, but only four on a scan line, so that's it's really kind of a wash. But some random Twitter user said, like, haha, that's wrong, you know, the, like, going right back into adolescent fighting. But fortunately, nobody responded, so hopefully that just dies right there. But I'll link to Maurice's article, you know, if you want to deep dive into the, specs, the spec differences between the 5200 and the ColecoVision. I'll go over the highlights. The ColecoVision is powered by the Z80 at twice the clock speed, but the 6502 can do more per clock cycle than the Z80. The ColecoVision has a Texas Instruments sound chip that's roughly comparable to the Pokey. In terms of color, the Atari has many more colors that it can generate. The ColecoVision is limited to 15 colors, period, that's it. Whereas, you know, we have 16 hues and 8 luminances. Unless you use the GTIA modes, in which case you have 16 luminances. The Commission's graphics processor is the Texas Instruments 9928, which has not only 256 by 192 resolution, but the pure bitmap modes are rarely used, and so it's mostly these text modes where they have a 256 character set. And so being 256 pixels wide, it's a 32 by 24 grid of characters. There's a monochrome text mode also, but that's rarely used in games. It's 40 by 24, where each character is 6 pixels wide and 8 pixels tall. And, but you can't use sprites in this mode, so that isn't really used for games at all. There's two different sort of graphic text modes. Mode 1, where each 8 characters in a row can have their own foreground and background color. So that means in 4 sets of 8 characters across the screen, you can have a foreground and background color that are, are different inside that set of 8 characters. And then apparently it was independent by row. So then, you know, individual rows didn't depend on any row above it. So you could change the foreground and background of any of those eight character wide sets. The mode two is, is different. It's, it's, I don't quite understand it, but it's apparently every. Every character has, you know, is eight pixels wide and each one of those rows inside the character can have a different foreground and background color. So I'm not sure how that's specified. I don't have enough of the technical details here to understand how that works. But so in some ways, the resolution being 256 wide and, you know, more colors specified across the scan line, this could be considered in some ways more powerful than the, you know, antique display list stuff that we get to work with. However, there's no scrolling at all, so all you have to do, that, you have to do all of that in software. And the collision detection with the sprites, there's apparently just a single flag to see if any two sprites have collided anywhere. Whereas, you know, we have the full range of, you know, this player collided with this player, and we have, you know, a whole bunch of different flags that can be checked for. So all the, the vision can tell is that if any two of the 32 sprites have collided somewhere, which is not nearly as useful as the collision detection we have on, on our Ataris. There's 16K of video RAM, but that's not directly accessible by the CPU, and so apparently there's only 1K of RAM in the ColecoVision that's actually you can use for any of your stuff in your normal game programming. 5200 has 16K of RAM, you know, shared between the video processor Antic and, you know, whatever you wanted to use for for your, for your own game. I mean, that has its trade-offs, obviously, because the Antic takes control of the bus and stops the CPU when it needs to look at the RAM, but you had more control of that. All in all, I would say probably the 5200 is more powerful than the ColecoVision. The resolution difference is really the main thing. It's 256 versus, you know, essentially we had, you know, we have 320, but that's not really with fully specifiable colors and we really have 160. And so that I think is what the ColecoVision buys you is an extra almost 100 pixels of of horizontal resolution in terms of fine detail. And really where the difference came is in software, and so the ColecoVision had some really good arcade ports, you know, starting with Donkey Kong as the pack-in game. And the article says, you know, the initial ColecoVision library reads like a who's who of arcade games. This alone makes the ColecoVision competitive with the 5200 and gives an edge over Mattel. Says Nintendo's Donkey Kong, the gimme cartridge, is ColecoVision's coup, a triumph in resourcefulness and execution. So really, in the ColecoVision versus the 5200 battle, it all is software. And the ColecoVision, unfortunately for the 5200, had the advantage in software. In the January 1983 analog, there is a mention of the 5200 in the VCS update by Lee Pappas. He said he's had the 5200 for a couple months, and says, It's a nice mixture of hardware and software. Said the versions of Pac-Man, Missile Command, and Star Raiders resemble those on the 400-800 with some additional enhancements. Said Star Raiders has an improved long-range scan. Instead of blips for moving ships and asteroids, there are now small graphic representations of each object. Says meteors look like meteors, base stars look like base stars, and so on. He has opinions of the controllers that would be considered contrarian, I suppose, now because he likes them. He says they're excellent, consisting of a combination joystick and small keyboard. The joystick is a non-centering variable unit with proportionality. For example, the more you push it in one direction while playing Star Raiders, for example, the faster the ship turns. He said he had a tough time with the keyboard. This is while it has nice rubbery-type keys with good positive feedback, he said the size was a problem. They were too small for him. In conclusion, he said there are plans to add a CX-2600 adapter to run all the VCS cartridges, trackball keyboard option, and a voice synthesizer package. Interestingly, this is about the last really official reference to the 5200 we get from an analog, like, staff writer. There are the 5200 hardware things, or the articles that Klaus Buchholz wrote that I already sort of summarized. Those don't come till 84, but there's only one more reference to the 5200 in 1983, and that's really it for analog. But the reference in the March issue coming up here is uh, quite spicy, so we'll get to that in a little bit. The January 1983 joystick magazine doesn't have any 5200 stuff, but it has a few interesting things. Like One is an article on the Tron arcade game with some strategies by the winner, it says, of the national contest, Richard Ross. It says it's a seven-week nationwide contest culminating in a sensational playoff at Madison Square Garden. So this Richard Ross had a 1.8 million single-game high score and has a whole bunch of patterns for light cycles and tanks and tips for the grid bugs and the MCP cone. Tron is my favorite arcade game and it's the one I got the best at myself. I used to be able to score over 100,000 or something, you know, so not super great, but I finally beat my neighbor. (laughs) My neighbor's an excellent arcade game player, and there was just recently the California Extreme Arcade Show, and so we met up there, and, you know, he beat me on just about every other video game we played except for Tron. So I finally put him in his place for one tiny moment. For the 8-bit computers, there's an article on Canyon Climber. It says a mountain of a game for your Atari 400-800, and the title of the article is a two-page spread and the left sort of like two-thirds of the page is a a picture of like a kind of a woodcut drawing maybe of some mountain goats and the (laughs) interesting the font is all like a it's like it's a monospace font this whole article is, is written in so it's kind of hard to read and there's no author for this for some reason so it shows each of the game screens and gives a few tips about how to how to get past each of the screens. The second screen is certainly problematic because it shows sort of caricatures of Native Americans shooting arrows at you, which speaks to the lack of diversity in the game industry back then. And not to say that problem is fixed nowadays, because it's certainly not, but at least this kind of racially and culturally insensitive stuff is less prevalent and is called out more often than it was in the past here in the 80s. There's a section in the magazine New Games 83, it says Home Video Cartridge Buying Guide, and there's sections for the VCS, the ColecoVision, Intellivision, Odyssey 2, but nothing for the 5200 yet. In the Computer 83 section, by Dave and Sandy Small, there's a list of 10 games, all of which are available on the Atari at least, some for the Apple, but it's it's Preppy, Zork, Pac-Man, Centipede, Star Raiders, Missile Command, The Scott Adams Adventures, The Wizard and the Princess, Galactic Chase, and Wizardry. So I guess Wizardry is not available on the Atari, so 9 of the 10 are on the Atari, and Wizardry is the only one that's, like, Apple only. At the end of the magazine, there's the joystick charts, the arcade, like, high score ranking thing, and the Pac-Man score is... Six point two million by James Anderson. So again, I hope you've read that Pac-Man high score thing with on the Perfect pac dot com website that I mentioned in the last episode. You know, ostensibly about Billy Mitchell's fraud, but you know, has, has, the, has the, a couple of, of the blog post entries about the Pac-Man high scores and how finally it was determined that it wasn't you know the game freezing or overheating, but was actually a limitation of the the game itself, and then how all the fraudsters were uh, caught out and exposed. In the January 1983 Electronic Games magazine, that's volume 1, number 11, we have the first big review of the 5200. On the cover it says, Inside the newest third-wave video game system, the Atari 5200, and it's shown as in the table of contents as the system close-up, checking out the super system. Can Atari's new high-powered video game system dominate home arcading the way the BCS has? Their arcade high score section has Pac-Man at 14 million, by Dave Marsden of Santo, Texas? So that's, what, four and a half times the actual maximum? The Tron High score is 795,000. That's that's a good score for sure. There's a chart that says, Electronic Games readers pick their favorite games. It says, Most popular computer programs, number one, is Star Raiders. And the first five, actually, are all for the Atari. Star Raiders, Pac-Man, Jawbreaker, Missile Command, and Centipede. And Wizardry is six, followed by Castle Wolfenstein, Crossfire, Choplifter, and Gorgon. So it's all Atari and Apple II in this rating. Most popular coin-op games are Donkey Kong, Dig Dug, and Tron is third, followed by Tempest, Zaxxon, Ms. Pac-Man, Pac-Man, Galaga, Robotron, and Gorf. It says they update this list on every issue of Electronic Games, so send in your votes. Flipping through the magazine, here's the first big ad I've seen from Atari. It says Atari introduces the 5200 Super System. It's a two-page ad. In the very foreground, at sort of the bottom of the page, is the 5200 with a cartridge in it, and the two controllers are sort of splayed out to the left and right. It sounds like a red-tinted moonscape, so I, I don't know, would that be Marscape? Because I guess there is an atmosphere behind it, so yeah, maybe it's supposed to be Mars. And at the horizon, there are four screenshots. There's Pac-Man, Galaga, Real Sports Football, and Centipede. The text says, No one knows better than Atari what arcade players want, and that's just what we've given them in the new Atari 5200 Super System. Everything Atari has learned since we invented the video games has gone in the 5200 Super System. Arcade graphics, arcade action, arcade sound. All so real, it's unreal. The 5200 has its own special arcade-quality cartridges like Centipede, Pac-Man, and Galaxian, plus the most lifelike sports games anywhere. Its controller is the most advanced in the world with an incredibly precise 360 analog joystick, a 12-digit keypad, plus start, reset, and fire all in your hand. Even a pause button for stopping the action without ending the game. And that's just the beginning. Defender, Dig Dug, Vanguard, and other arcade hits are coming in 1983 along with an optional trackball controller and an adapter that accepts all Atari 2600 cartridges. The Atari 5200 Super System, no other home system looks like it, feels like it, or plays like it, because nobody beats Atari at its own game, except Atari. So yeah, well-designed ad. The magazine has their, they say, annual arcade awards. Video Game of the Year is Demon Attack for the VCS. They have all sorts of stuff, it's a lot of the console things, but they do have a computer game division, and so they say the computer game of the year is David's Midnight Magic, which is the computer simulation of pinball for the Apple II. It was released for the Atari later, I guess not in time for this this article, but it definitely was available on the Atari. There are other home computer categories, like the best computer adventure is Deadline, the best science fiction fantasy game is Star Warrior, which is, for the Atari it says Automated Simulations. It says honorable mention goes to Caverns of Mars. It says the program won an award from Atari and moved from the APX catalog to the company's regular line because of its outstanding merit. The best arcade action game is k Shootout, with honorable mentions to Jawbreaker and Starblazer by Tony Suzuki, which we talked about several episodes ago. It's the Apple version, because I don't think the Atari version is out yet. It calls out its scintillating graphics featuring gobs of intricate detail, and also uh, its absorbing mix of brain-teasing puzzle and all-out action. Starblazer is a classic. The best computer sports game, Cypher Bowl, which it says is by Atari for the four hundred eight hundred. I don't call that being a title for Atari, so pause. And Atari Mania says it's by a publisher called Artski, not Atari. Although it has a lot of the same letters. The most innovative computer game is Moonbase IO, which, yeah, as I mentioned last episode, we've talked ad nauseum about in this podcast. But I guess most innovative doesn't mean good. But the idea that it has a voice track that plays along with you is an interesting idea for sure. He gives an honorable mention to Nautilus. The split-screen graphics are an outstanding innovation, and this feature makes Nautilus one of the most involving pieces of game software to appear this year. And they have more awards and stuff. The only one I'll mention now is the coin-op game of the, game of the year is Tron. So, excellent choice there. The best action game is Robotron. Also an excellent choice. And I'll just mention some other arcade games, because they're great. Bosconian, for the best science fiction fantasy coin-op, and most innovative game is Tempest. In their section, the Programmable Parade, which is their review of sort of cartridge systems. There's nothing yet for the 5200. But finally we come to the 5200 review. It's a four-page article by Arnie Katz. The first two pages are dominated by a picture of the system, like sort of up close, where you can really see the shape and detail of the system itself along with the two controllers. The only problem is, it's an old photo. It says Atari Video System X. Contrast that with the ad we saw from Atari earlier, where it actually said you had the, the new logo Atari 5200. Even the cartridge that's inserted says Atari Video System X football. So, you know, this is all just fake staged images, I guess, from the mock-ups that were originally designed way back in early 82. There's some labels on the photo. It says the cartridges for the 5200 are not compatible with the 2600. They're placed in the top loading slot seen here. But again, because this is a pre-release photo, the cartridge is like kind of leaning back. It's at an angle kind of leaning back towards the back. So you can see more of the cartridge label than you normally would when you plug it in to the system. So it's it's not yeah, it's not a <laughs> not an actual system photo. Some of the other like labels says game functions on the 5200 are controlled by the hybrid keypad joystick controller and a label that I don't really understand it says computing functions in the 5200 are assigned solely to the keypad portion of the system's hand controllers. I don't know what that means. The article's headline is, Is this the video game of the 1980s? It says, Atari has produced a new state-of-the-art video game system that's a concept worth pondering and relishing for a while. It says, the VCS is by far and away the most popular programmable video game of all time. Now the same manufacturer has unveiled the 5200, which it hopes will be the VCS's eventual successor. It says, although time and technology are catching up with the VCS, replacing it as America's favorite fun machine won't be easy. Then it says, you know, the sleek-styled 5200 looks great, calling the styling space age. And I guess what they mean by the, you know, the game functions and what they say, you know, what do they say, uh, computing functions are assigned solely to the keypad portion? I think they mean there's, there's no buttons on the controller or on the console itself. It's all controlled by the hand controllers. So there's an LED power on light that greatly minimizes the chance that a game will be left on overnight <laughs> and then says compatibility with existing hardware and software must have been the furthest thing from the designers minds because nothing you currently own will work in conjunction with the 5200, not even the TV antenna switchbox says arcaders will be especially unhappy to learn that their collections of gourmet controllers, which work on the VCS, 4800, Commodores, can't be plugged in the 5200. But then they say, in fairness, Atari offers an explanation for this, they feel it's foolish to limit advanced video game systems, and that, by biting the bullet now, electronic gamers will benefit in the long run from the introduction of more sophisticated gear. But then the article says it's somewhat more difficult to understand why the company didn't make the 5200's game cartridges compatible with the 400 and 800 and or the VCS. They do note that they plan on adding the VCS compatibility cartridge later. But yeah, that kind of, that one sentence right there, it's like sort of speaks to a whole lot of things. The, <laughs> the divisions within Atari, the you know, lack of a better strategy to replace the VCS, you know, a whole bunch of stuff. They say the controllers are a noble attempt to make some improvements. And it's a brave experiment, but not entirely successful. They say it might be better if a tire or somebody else works through all the bugs. And they don't really say I have a problem with the keypad or the sort of functions itself, it's pretty much the joystick. And they say it's a problem immediately obvious, because the pack-in game Super Breakout works best with a paddle, but this is not a paddle. They say playing Super Breakout, it's hard to get your little paddle thingy on the screen to move all the way to the edges. They say if Atari didn't intend to produce a paddle, it would be kindness to electronic gamers to refrain from creating games that require such a command device. See, indictment number 8 billion of the choice of Super Breakout for the pack-in game. They have an error in here. They say the 5200's real excitement comes from the system itself, which boasts 64K of RAM, which is not true. It only has 16. They say that's much more than most microcomputers, but you can't create your own programs with this machine, but it should be comparable to personal computers when the job is to prepare commercially prepared software. So yeah, there's, uh, uh yeah, I don't know, other errors. They say that, that the price of the system is expensive because they have to make all these 64K RAM carts to sell for under $40, but that's, I mean, the, The carts are 16K, I think, at the beginning, and then, you know, 32K later, and then, I guess, you know, bank switch carts further in the future. But yeah, there's definitely a few errors in this article. They talk about the prospective buyer, and it says, you know, it depends largely if you already have a VCS or a 400-800, you might be less likely to buy one of these. And they say the reason is that with the exception of Galaxian, all the titles are either from the computer or the VCS with only slight changes. And then they list some of the cartridges, you know, super breakout, it's hard to play without the paddle. The Space Invaders, as they say it's a virtual duplicate of the four hundred eight hundred version, well it's not quite it's more like a traditional Space Invaders. I mean not exactly either, obviously, but it's it's more like it than the, the Rob Fulop programmed four hundred eight hundred version. Talk about Star Raiders saying that Atari's advertising now seems to equate Star Raiders with the arcade-spawn biggies like Asteroids and Pac-Man, and there's a lot of truth to that claim. They say Star Raiders is certainly the hands-down choice of electronic gaming readers as the favorite computer software program, and there's no reason to think the 5200 version will be worse, and it's the only cartridge to date that makes extensive use of the controller overlays. They say if Missile Command is a superb version, presumably because the joysticks actually work a little bit better because you have proportional control. They say Galaxian, the newcomer, not having been offered on some other Atari system before, is nevertheless a bit of a disappointment, because the animation just isn't that smooth. That while the winged aliens look pretty good, it doesn't have the same grace as the coin-op. And it closes as, will Atari duplicate its VCS success with 5200? And the only possible answer is the jury is still deliberating, and we won't know the answer for at least the next year. So I would say that's not a glowing review of the 5200. More like cautiously optimistic, I suppose, hoping that the software catalog is going to improve. In the computer gaming section here, they have reviews of Preppy, Choplifter, uh, Pac-Man for the 400-800, which they don't compare to the 5200 version, but, you know, is essentially identical. is a review of Gamma Software's Soccer, which they said, shows considerable improvement over their debut program, the Inept Hockey which I think was reviewed in Creative Computing probably three episodes ago or so. It's two to four players, and doesn't have scrolling, so it's it's almost like a toy version of soccer rather than an actual simulation of soccer. There's a review of Abuse from Don't Ask Software, which apparently just throws insults back at you. It's like a text game. And finally, the last review of an Atari game is Trivia Trek by Jerry White from Swifty Software, which is a text-based trivia game that needs basic. They say it's not of earth-shaking importance, but it's certainly fun. There's an Inside Gaming column, by Will Richardson, who interviews Rob Fulop. And there's not much 400-800 content. It mentions his version of Space Invaders and how he hid the initials RF in various places. The article is largely about Demon Attack and Cosmic Arc, his two VCS games programmed for a magic. And an interesting quote is, it says, I'm more impressed with the VCS now than when I first started designing for it. It's such a software-based system, he marvels. That's about it for this magazine. The 2600 talk gives us a nice segue into the Atari Age magazine for January-February of 83. It's volume 1, number 5. Since the Atari Age is mostly about the 2600. It does have a nice little article about how to rewire a CX-40 joystick to make it left-handed. They have a picture of the joystick opened up so you can see the circuit board and it tells you how to rewire the wires. It does mention the 5200 briefly. The 5200 Flash is a one-page section where it says you can order your 5200 cartridges and accessories from the Atari Club. But it seems like it's not a discount, it's just the same, the regular list price that was mentioned in the
1: like, Atari documentation from uh, last episode. Popularity Contest I own an Atari 5200, and in all of your latest issues, all I read about is ColecoVision. Why? The 5200 has just as much or more going for it, and many more units have been sold than the ColecoVision unit. So the 5200 must be more popular. And Atari's releasing carts this summer that will make ColecoVision owners drool. So let's hear more about the 5200. Nick Baim, Glendale, Wisconsin. The February 1983 Video Games magazine finally has their big review of the Atari
0: 5200. It mentions that on the cover page, plus it says a special 27-page home computer section. Flipping through the magazine, it has that same ad from Atari. Atari introduces the 5200 Super System, you know, on the, the more sort of red background that we talked about. Before we get to the 5200 review, there's an interview with Ralph Baer. It says the godfather of video games wouldn't mind being recognized for his inventions, but he'd really rather talk about the future. In the in- introduction, it talks about he's been electrical engineer for over 30 years and has 70 patents, and they talk about patent number 3659285, which reads in part, For the generation display and manipulation of symbols upon the screen of television receivers for the purpose of playing games. And so apparently, this is the TV game patent that was the subject of a lawsuit between Atari and Magnavox, along with the company he works for, which is a Sanders Associates, which is a military electronics company. The article implying the pong console and the magnavox odyssey 100 were the subject of that suit and it says uh nolan bushnell doesn't harbor any ill feelings towards ralph Baer because i guess what magnavox sued atari there's a quote from nolan bushnell saying um referring to Baer saying he did some really good pioneering work in the analog field just think about what he was dealing with then didn't have the tools i did a lot of the work he was doing came before many of the integrated circuits that made my life very easy i think he's a bright man it goes a little bit of the history of Bear. says that he arrived in the U.S. from Germany in 1938, and it said, living out of the Nazis, he'd been expelled from the school he was attending. And there's a quote from him, I'm Jewish, and that was a bit of a problem then, which is probably the understatement of all time. It said he served in the military intelligence in World War II, then attended American Institute of Technology in Chicago on the GI Bill. It said Bear became, by his own estimation, the first person ever to earn a bachelor's degree in TV engineering. The interviewer is Steve Bloom, and he begins by saying, doesn't it bother you that Nolan Bushnell gets all the credit for video games? And he replies that he had to make peace with that several years ago, and it bothers him, but he said he has to take a backseat to the commercial considerations. You know, because there's these, the patent that he made was worth so much money that you have to suppress your ego, he said. The article talks a little bit about some of the legal cases he was involved with, you know, how he had to testify, and then gets into the background about how he sort of had the ideas to do this in the first place. He said it started in September of 66, and he's got a notebook that he said is when he started thinking about. It's like, what else can you do with a TV set? So they got spots on a screen, and then in the lab, they were able to get like a hockey game, he said, in early 67. He said their first thought was to take this to cable companies, and maybe that would be what would sort of drive the adoption of cable TV by people, because by at that point, it was not at all common. For households to have cable TV. But he said the cable industry was in trouble and had more important things to deal with, and it wasn't until early 69 when they started doing demos to other, you know, sort of electronic companies. And then in 1970, it was Magnavox that finally pulled the trigger on it and they signed their deal, and that was when he said the Odyssey 100 was born. He describes the Odyssey 100 as Forty transistors and a pile of diodes. He said basically you couldn't have anything more complex than a line down the middle to indicate a net and paddles and balls. He said they couldn't even do scoring because that was too expensive and it wasn't till three years later that General Instruments developed ICs for Magnavots that could generate scores. Bear said that the Odyssey one hundred was plug in programmable, he said it had cassettes so you stuck into a slot out front that were basically circuit cars that reprogrammed the various circuits that were already programmed inside by interconnecting them differently for different games. So that's a complicated description, don't exactly understand, since you like rewiring paths between existing transistors, perhaps. The interviewer says that the Odyssey 100 sold fairly well in 1972 at about a 100,000 units, but the business tailed off and by 75, there were $60 million in losses. And so Barry describes the mistakes that Magnavox made, saying they restricted sales to their so- stores only. They had the idea that it could only be played with a Magnavox TV, that they should have emphasized this sort of plug-in cassette programmability thing, but that they didn't. And that after the first year, it got really poor support. They didn't advertise at all in 73, he says. He said if it hadn't been for Nolan Bushnell with starting the arcade business in the fall of 72, he said the whole thing could have gone down the drain. Then the interviewer asks, which came first, Odyssey or Pong? And Barry replies, Pong is no coincidence. Pong was a derivative of Odyssey, not the other way around by any means. It's a matter of record, Bushnell or one of his boys actually saw Odyssey sometime during the course of 72. The interviewer asks if they ever worked on any coin-op games, you know, sort of to get into Atari's business. And he said they spent a substantial amount of money to build some games, and they test them out on a few local arcades, but they had no way to manufacture them at, at Sanders. Said he did a business plan, but they turned out not to be interested. And so he went back to the lab, stepped out of his role as the consumer product division, and became an engineering fellow. They talk a little bit about video discs and video games, and, you know, if he has given that any thought. And he said he had, he sort of envisions it like a huge storage device, you know, exactly like a CD-ROM. And he said he could essentially put every program ever made on a single side of one of these discs. They do get into the kind of Dragon's Lair style use of, of laser discs. That was kind of, you know, at the time thinking that's where gaming was going and sort of presaging the eventual cost of development of, you know, like AAA games now. He says a whole movie or a whole game made out of computer graphics is expensive. That takes a George Lucas type and $10 million to put together. Tron was the expensive way of doing it, but to me it's the future. The article finishes up by saying if he ever regrets not having gone into business like Nolan Bushnell, who of course got quite wealthy, and Bear said, I never wanted my own company and all the headaches that come along with that. I've sort of had my own one-man show here all along anyway. I've also been quite successful as a consultant. I'm satisfied, but I didn't get rich. And the interviewer asks, doesn't that bother you? And he replies, people look at me like I'm some kind of schmo. How could I not become a multimillionaire? It's easy, but I haven't done too badly. I can't complain. There's an article, Future Shock Talk, about the state of video games in 1982 and what's coming the next year. It says, talk to anybody who knows anything about video games, and they'll tell you 82 was not a particularly innovative year. Designers will tell you it was a year for taking stock, while arcade owners muttered darkly about falling revenues. And so they have a bunch of interviews with people, you know, with their predictions for the upcoming year, and one is Ed Rotberg, who they say is senior vice president in charge of engineering at Vidia which is the company that Nolan Bushnell purchases and becomes Sente. He says 82 wasn't that bad, but 83 should be a lot easier, saying he should see some great strides forward, because one of the big changes will be a lot more memory of being available. In 82, it was, you know, 16, 32, 48K, but next year it's going to be anything goes. What that's going to mean is more graphics, higher resolution, better sound effects, better music. Big change, though, is going to have to be better gameplay. And then he gets stuck on the thing about the Dragon's Lair thing, so his favorite fantasy, says, is an interactive movie. I like the idea of going to a movie theater where at certain points, the action will depend on people in the theater taking control. He thinks in 10 years' time, people will still be going out to do video games and arcades because the enhanced graphics that arcade games can provide will be impossible for a home system to offer. And he was probably right about the ten year time frame, but you know, much past that, you know, getting into the late nineties, early two thousands, then you're starting to get systems that are more powerful at home or at least powerful enough to do the kind of games that people won't leave the home to go to the arcade for. There are some other small interviews, one with Bob Brown who used to be with Atari but now is with Starpath, home of the Starpath Supercharger. He said he thinks 83 has to be the year of the shakeout. Consumers are willing to pay for games they want, but tendency to pour money into bad games or boring games, or games to take forever to get good at, is past. He said role-playing games, at least in the home market, are going to become more popular. And he thinks arcades will still survive, because the industry is evolving at a really rapid speed and technology is there. Dave Nunning also has a bit in here. It says the arcade industry's on a plateau, but the next real revolution is going to be 3D. He says that's what they're aiming for now. They're designing a game that in 1984 they'll be able to put down 60 frames a second equal to the power of a vax machine. Give you photo quality graphics, incredible stereo sound and gameplay like you've never seen. The 27-page home computer section is kind of a gentle introduction to a home computer, sort of in a generic way, kind of, you know, identifying terms and what computers can be used for, the types of software available, the types of peripherals available, and even if telecommunication software is right for you. There are no real recommendations, it's just its really a, a very sort of high-level introduction to home computing. Finally, we get to their review of the 5200 system. It's the Hard Sell column by Phil Wiswell. Atari's 5200 will take you for a ride, it says. It's in general a much more positive review than the one in Electronic Games. It starts off saying, If TV game machines were automobiles, then the 5200 would be a six-door limousine. With power to spare, high-resolution color graphics, arcade-like sound effects, and multifunction hand controllers, this model is a real gem. It follows that, though, saying, on the other hand, when you see and hear wonderful special effects of cartridges like Pac-Man, Centipede, and Defender, you'll realize the 5200 has the strength to be a home computer. In fact, I've heard many industry people refer to it as a 400 computer without the keyboard. Why bother to make this comparison? Because the 400's price has fallen to or below the level of the 5200. Both sell for between $225 and $250. Because Atari has programmed a large library of games for the 400, that includes what is available for the 5200, and because the graphics and sound effects are nearly identical, the 5200 is like a chauffeur-driven limousine. You are not allowed in the driver's seat. But they suggest that, you know, while the 400 is, you know, more powerful than the 5200 at the same price, that not everybody wants a home computer, and some people just want entertainment. They want arcade-quality video games, period, and there's no question about it, the 5200 has them. They like the styling of the 5200, saying it's like a functional work of art, and they like how you can start games from the controller, not having to get up and mess with the console switches. They talk about the controllers and mention that it's a drawback, that it's not self-centering, and they say another drawback is when you use the joystick as a paddle, that you have to keep the controller oriented correctly, such that, because the paddle only works in the east-west directions, they say, so if you get it slightly tilted, it's not going to react in, as the, in the way that you anticipate. They talk about the software and saying, despite initial offering of only a dozen cartridges, that the software is what the 5200 is all about, and every game is a proven, popular, arcade-quality item. Sort of glossing over Super Breakout a little bit, but Centipede and Pac-Man, they say, are are great conversions, that the 5200 adaptation of Star Raiders is quite good. They say the soccer game is on par with Mattel's ASL soccer, but that as nice as the games are, the 5200 needs more. That it has so much more potential than the VCS. And that while it's nice to see Defender at home that looks good and plays like the real thing, it's not enough. And he said already it's time for games to be developed that only the 5200 can handle. And only then will VCS owners have the real excuse to trade up. In conclusion, they say the hardware's great, you know, the high-resolution color graphics as a result of the custom-designed graphics chip is one of the best on the market, saying the giveaway is lots of moving objects on the screen that don't flash on and off. They say the sound synthesizer easily, easily replicates all the arcade sounds, and then it's not the hardware that's an issue. They say it's 5200 is a classy act that needs to develop a following fast. It says they know Atari will continue to take advantage of its coin-op division games, but what we don't know is if other companies like Activision and Magic and Parker Brothers will commit to designing games for the 5200. It says Atari must sell a lot of units in its first year for this to happen, My guess is that it will, because there have always been plenty of Americans willing to pay for comfortable, status-yielding, chauffeur-driven entertainment. The February 1983 Creative Computing has a mention of the, of the 5200 in the Outpost Atari section. It's super brief, it just says, We have confirmed 400-800 versions of Galaxian and Defender in ROM form from Atari. Both games are spin-offs from the new 5200 model video game. The 5200 may yet prove to be a boon to owners of Atari computer systems if it spurs game development common to all machines. Galaxian has already been demonstrated and is a solid implementation. One can only hope that Defender will be up to snuff. And that's it. That's the lone reference of the 5200 in this magazine. This issue does have a bunch of stuff about Minor 2049er. There's a big review and a separate article, and they talk about it here in the Outpost Atari. But since Creative Computing is one of the normal magazines I cover, you'll have to wait for the February 83 episode of the podcast in order to get all this good stuff. And in that episode, I'll target Minor 2049er for a like technical episode teardown game review thingy. So yeah, that should be a fun one. In the February 83 issue of Electronic Games, it says the player's guide to computer games. The front cover is Pac-Man and Miss Pac-Man with sort of human bodies, but Pac-Man heads. Apparently just after they got married, because Miss Pac-Man's in a wedding dress and Pac-Man's in a tuxedo. She's giving him a big old smooch on the cheek and he's, you know, looking straight at the camera, a smile on his face, and the four ghosts are around in the background with like grimaces and like their fists out like, and they have feet for some reason, and the wedding gifts apparently are fruit, because there's a pile of fruit at their feet. And it's a nice change, it says a complete guide to pack merchandise rather than Pac-Man merchandise. Also, it says gaming in the handicap. Video games light up their lives and then secrets of joysticks revealed. The biggest thing on the front cover, it says, Are you ready for the total gaming experience? Flying high with the Navy. But I'm not going to cover that because I was in the Air Force. So take that, swabbies. And yes, I realize everybody called us the Chair Force. So yeah, it's all in good fun though. We always appreciated all the other services. And it was always amusing and or scary to figure out who to salute when you're on a different base. because. All the ranks look totally different, especially enlisted ranks. It's like, holy cow, there's the uniforms are very different, and the insignias are in a different place. Not to mention the names are all completely different across all the services. Anyway, the point of all that is, you need to hear the Air Force song. Off we go, into the wild blue yonder. And no, you don't. Thankfully, back to the magazine, in the little like hotline section, they have a blurb that, Atari brings E.T. home says Atari just scored the coin-op and home rights to the video game versions of the blockbuster movie. And it says the film's director, Steven Spielberg, will work closely with Atari on the design, content, and execution of the game. But this shouldn't prove too grueling a task for Spielberg, a self-confessed video game fanatic. Methinks he he should also have helped out with the schedule a little bit. says this news, along with the Atari Lucasfilm connection, puts Atari on top with regard to film-based video games. At least quantity-wise, I suppose. The arcade scores still show ridiculous versions for Pac-Man. 14 million by Dave Marsden of Santo, Texas. Liar. There's an ad from Atari about the 800 computer. says, we expanded the memory and reduced the price. says the Atari 800 now has 48K RAM. The text tries to differentiate itself from the C64 and the Apple II Plus, saying there are nine graphics modes, where the Apple II Plus and C64 only have two. It says Atari offers you 256 colors and lets you display 128 on screen at one time. Well, actually, it really could do 256 at one time, you know, on one of the GTIA modes with some displayless interrupts. It says the Apple II Plus, 16 total. Of course, that's on low res. It says the Apple II Plus has very limited music capability. And it says because the Atari 800 requires fewer commands to create sound, it's easier to use than the Commodore 64. And that's probably about the best comparison you can do with the Pokey and the SID. Apart from the Pokey having an additional voice, the SID is certainly a more powerful chip than Pokey. It says over 2,000 quality software titles are available for the 800. And it says Atari also has seven programming languages, and only BASIC is currently available for the Commodore 64. Notice how the Apple II is absent from that entire section. They try to get around that by saying it's almost half the price of the Apple II+. Plus. It says in almost every respect, power, performance, and peripherals, the Atari 800 home computer is comparable to the Apple II+. Plus. Cost, however, is a different story. Suggested retail is almost half that of the Apple II+. Plus. It finishes up saying the Atari 800 home computer... Its memory isn't the only thing that's even better than before. So is its value, and then it says for more information write to Atari blah 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 Denver Colorado eight zero two one six. I haven't seen Atari you know sort of headquarters places in Denver before. Generally all the ads I or all the locations I'd ever seen was all you know was in um, Sunnyvale. So I don't know what kind of like corporate presence they had in, in Colorado. All right, here's the Navy Flight Simulator article, blah, blah, blah. All right, it's about, a like, a serious flight simulator, you know, one that's mounted on gimbals and stuff and is controlled with, like, mini-computers of the time. It looks like it's actually for helicopters. And in typical military fashion, it has a hugely long name. It's uh, the SH-2F Weapon System Trainer device 2F106. Not related to the F-106 aircraft, I don't think, because that was not a Navy aircraft. Just whatever code name they chose happened to be that. But if you're an airplane person, like me, that F-106 actually means something. But not what they intended it to mean. The is by David Lustig, and it's kind of, the first half of the story is, is sort of the background of the simulator itself, and you know how it's got, has like three operators, and then the people who are being trained, and they have, you know, the, with a computer display. Looks like it's kind of a small display, so it's not like an immersive simulator like they would have now. But the second half of the article is about how the Navy let him operate the simulator after getting sort of a, you know, basic set of instructions from a, a trained instructor. And apparently you could simulate battle stuff because it said that they were hit, apparently from an enemy aircraft, and it buzzed and shuddered and fire warning lights came on. And he said, the whole damn thing shakes so hard, I'm surprised we haven't fallen apart. And it said, he exited the simulator to a smirking group of instructors who were doing all they can to refrain from outli- outright laughter. And on this page, there's a funny ad. It says, I was a 97-pound weakling, and then I slipped my Monster Maze cartridge into my computer. It's an ad for Monster Maze by Epix. It says, first I saw a full-screen maze, then I entered a chamber of horrors. I scurried down endless halls looking for gold bars and vitamins and watched out for lurking terrors. And all as though it were in 3D. I ate enough vitamins to subdue the monsters before I lost all of my nine lives. Hours of fun, thrilling, scary, and I forgot all about being a 97-pound weakling. You can have the same fun. All you need is an Atari home computer or Commodore VIC-20, and $39.95. Monster Maze is by Epics, one of the largest, oldest, and we believe best designers and producers of games for microcomputers. Available now at your computer software dealer. And then because English is stupid and it lacks a gender-neutral pronoun, it says, if he doesn't have it in stock, suggest that he order it now. So, should use they there, people back in 1980. If they don't have it in stock, suggest they order it now. How hard is that? Come on. Here's an article, Joystick Update, How Your Favorite Controller Works, by Henry B. Cohen. It shows some disassembled pictures of some micro-switch joysticks and some leaf-switch joysticks, and then kind of explains why diagonal movement is not as precise as the horizontal or vertical movement, because you have to, you know, hit both switches at the same time. In the Programmable Parade section by Arnie Katz and Bill Kunkel, it's, this is all the, programmable to them means like cartridge-based systems, not user-programmable. But they have a review of Star Raiders for the VCS, but they use an image from the 400-800 version of Star Raiders. So that's a totally different experience than what they are talking about. That'd be false advertising if it were coming from Atari itself. A little sidebar of electronic games readers pick their favorite games. Star Raiders is still number one. Castle Wolfenstein for the Apple IIs moved up to number two. But the 8-bits have six out of the top seven spots. The others for the Atari are Pac-Man, Jawbreaker, Missile Command, Centipede, and Mouse Attack. In the big section, Player's Guide to Computer Games, it's 14 pages with no ads, broken out into six sections, where they sort of, it's not really reviews in as much as kind of highlighting some games that might be of interest. Like in the first section, it's space games, where they talk about Star Raiders, uh, Galaxian, Space Invaders, those kind of games. Um, They say, Star Raiders by Atari for the 400 and 800 computers gets many votes as the ultimate Trek program. It was the first to blend the universe-spanning strategic phase of locating the enemy with pulse-pounding ship-to-ship dogfighting rendered in high-resolution graphics. Small wonder that Star Raiders is placed at the top of every single reader popularity poll conducted by Electronic Games since the magazine's inception says, apart from the often stunning visuals, the underlying strength of Star Raiders is that it gives the player a lot to do, from picking which of several displays to show on the screen, to navigating through hyperspace, to reach distant portions of the galaxy. There's so much happening, in fact, that several people can carve up the responsibilities and play as a team. So yeah, they're quite enamored with Star Raiders, as they should be. mentions a few other games, Zenith, Epoch, Missile Command abm Then talks about you know asteroids space invaders galaxy and then it says uh, check out rockland's super invaders a 400 game that is much closer to the quarter snatching original but i think that's a typo they mean deluxe invaders and at the end it mentions now that atari has published a 5200 galaxy and perhaps we'll see one soon for the 400 in the labyrinth section so these are all like mino maze games pac man style games talks about the usual suspects like jawbreaker ghost hunter snack attack and Money Muncher for... I think those are Apple games? It mentions Thunder Island from Analog Software. And it classifies, like, Berserk and Dodgem among those in this section. In the War Games section, it talks a lot about, you know, SSI games. It mentions Eastern Front, of course, and somehow groups Night Mission Pinball into these this War Gaming section. is a bit of a stretch. In the Scrolling Shootout section, it calls games like Choplifter, Scramble, Defender, Caverns of Mars... Protector, and it has some interesting stuff about Protector. It says, originally created by Mike Potter for Crystalware, it appeared in a much improved version for Synapse software. It says, now this duo-directing blast-em-up has been released a third time as Protector 2. And then it says, perhaps Mike Potter will continue to revise this multi-scenario scroller every year to keep it up with the current state-of-the-art. It says, but if you're too impatient to wait for Protector Mark X, you can't miss with this title's latest incarnation. Then it mentions Star Blazer for the Apple II by Tony Suzuki, you know, which is eventually, we've talked about this before, is eventually released as Sky Blazer on the Ataris. There's a section on adventure games, where it of course mentions all the Infocom games up to this point, which highlighting Deadline, along with, you know, Zork and stuff. It mentions some Scott Adams games, then Wizardry, and then another pro- program in great scope is Ultima. It says Apple II, I think it was already released for the Atari at this point. Then finally, they have the arcade section, where they talk about you know, Frogger and similar games like Preppy. And they mention some Apple II games like Sneakers, Beer Run, and Free Fall. Throughout this article, they have not so much screenshots as... Uh, I mean, there are some screenshots, but a lot of them, they have the pictures of the box art for some of the games. And facing the last page of this article was an ad from Synapse Software, showing the games Fort Apocalypse, Reptilian, Claim Jumper, and Seamus. So I bet they had a premium price there to be at the end of this article. So all those are for the Atari computer only. And my feeling is like 1983 is really when you get into the like the heyday of the Atari 8 bits. Like Fort Apocalypse is one of those. Seamus another one. Upcoming we have Miner 2049 and of course Jumpman. You know the latter part of '82 and into '83 is when they really start to push the hardware. And that if a game does not look like it's pushing the hardware, it just doesn't seem like it's going to make any waves anymore. You know, when I wrote my game, Fuji Run, for the um, Kansas Fest contest that one year. I purposely designed it to be like a 1980-81 game, because, you know, it was something small, self-contained, that was easy to do, but that kind of game is just not going to do anything at this point. It would be relegated to, like, a, a magazine game, you know, kind of a type-in game, but not a commercially viable game, you know, in end of 82, starting 83. Next is an article, Inside Gaming... It's by an unnamed author, but it says a designer for all seasons in it, and it's an interview with Danny Button. It says at this point she's created three games, Cartels and Cutthroats, Computer, Quarterback, and Cytron Masters. Her most famous game, of course, is Mule, but this is before Mules come out. And rather presciently, it says, if her last three addings are indicative of what lies ahead, things should continue to go quite well. I hope the unnamed author patted themselves on the back for that, because that was quite an accurate prediction. Talks about how the last three titles were a business game, a sports game, and a robot clash, which is Cytron Masters. And what's next? And she said, I'm going to do another business game next. I don't know anything more about it than that yet. But yeah, this is obviously what turns into Mule. The article talks about what sets games apart from other types of games, and one of the things is documentation. And she said, on Cytron Masters, we decided to put an introduction mode into the program to make learning the game easier. It said, some companies lose sight of finer touches. If someone's going to spend 30 to 40 on a product, they deserve more than one page of introduction in a game disc. It said, even the packaging aspect of software publishing interests her. It says, uh, she said, I don't think cartels and cutthroats is a good name for that program because it doesn't tell enough about what it's about. I think the name is hurt Sales. With all the games currently being turned out, it's important to be successful with each phase of marketing. And I think the name Mule, obviously, was a great one. In conclusion, the unnamed author says it's the program that counts, not the package, and then Buttons, Three Works, Cartels, and Cutthroats, Computer Quarterback, and Cytron Masters all stand tall in the gaming world in this regard. And then finishes with whether she's soaring through outer space, engineering a super simulation of a major team sport, or simply delighting moguls, and of course those would be moguls, Danny Button has the right stuff. Now this is a much more sort of balanced article than the hagiography we've got of Uh, fernando herrera in what two issues ago in the december 82 issue so yeah hopefully they will be more like this in the future the little pack merchandising article just shows all the random stuff you can get with pack people on it you know roller skates lunch boxes watches backpacks patches hats books cups jewelry and my personal favorite the pack telephone In the computer gaming section for the Atari, they talk about a game called Marathon by Eduware, which is an educational math game, and it says nothing turns off the typical home arcader more than the whisper of the word educational. It says it's one or two players for simple addition, subtraction, multiplication, division questions said that runners advance along this race's course by successfully picking the answer to each problem from a series of possibilities using the joystick. There's a few Apple II games, and then there is the British Heritage Jigsaw Puzzle Volume 1 for the four hundred, eight hundred 800 from Thorny MI. It says it's on cassette, and there was a, a volume 2 as well, uh, Atari Mania does not have a dump for it, interestingly. And that's the last Atari game they review. The article Gaming and the Handicap by Diane Yankelevitz is about special controllers that allow people with physical challenges to play video games at home. Talk about a boy, Tommy, who is a C3 quadriplegic, only able to move his head and needs the help of a respirator to breathe, so he has a special mouth controller that he can play VCS games for hours at a time, he says. He says it's one of the very few things he can do for himself. Talks about a boy, John, who has cerebral palsy, whose favorite game is Asteroids. It says he has almost no control over the muscles in his body, but the ones he does control he can use to smash electronic space debris with pressure-mounted switches on his wheelchair. So there's one by his right knee, which is the fire button, and two mounted near the, the padded head brace of his wheelchair that he can use is either left or right, or it says if he flicks another switch, it changes this to up and down, and they say they haven't figured out a way to get him to have all four directions at once. The article says that, you know, video games might be sort of, you know, like a waste of time, but for people who are limited in these ways, it's something they can do on their own for fun. And it's a tremendous morale booster as well as a way she's saying of developing muscular skills they need in order to function. You know, using a mouse controllers like this is practice for being able to use a mouse controller to get your wheelchair to move around. And then also the technology being developed here can also help people as they're recovering from less serious accidents, you know, regain their mobility and, you know, like fine motor control. And then interestingly says the person who designs these special adaptive devices is Ken Yankelevitz, presumably related somehow to Diane Yankelevitz, the author of this article. He says Ken's an aerospace engineer and computer programmer. And then after taking apart Atari joysticks to see how they worked, he decided to try to design a more reliable one, then showed them to the management of Atari. And Atari apparently began referring people to him to design custom controllers. And apparently it must be more of a volume business now because it's not entirely custom. It says the the most popular and versatile controller is a soft-touch button box controller, it said, And additionally, it says several hospitals in Southern California are using the controls in their children's and young adults' units. And it says people all over the country are benefiting from these controllers. It says most young adults with spinal cord injuries had their accidents while involved in some exciting activity like motorcycle riding. Exciting slash dangerous, I guess. These are not sedentary people, and one of their biggest mental problems is boredom. They sit at home or hospitals, staring at TV for hours because there isn't much else to do, and playing video games gives them a chance to be active, to respond both mentally and physically, and finishes up by saying, now, who says video games are bad? Finally, in the Q&A section by the Game Doctor, we get to the reference of the 5200 in this magazine. Question from Tim Lyman of North Pembroke, Massachusetts asks... Could you clear up once and for all the difference between ROM and RAM? Also, I own the Atari VCS and am planning to buy the 5200 when it comes out. Will I have to disconnect the VCS's wires from the switchbox when playing the other system? And finally, what type of controllers will be supplied with the new system? And the answer is, okay, that's not one, not two, but three questions. And it says, here's the poop on ROM versus RAM. That's a direct quote. And does a not-so-great, well, I don't know. It says, ROM are the chips anchored inside the cartridges, meaning that the entire program is encoded on the chip and the computer is simply addressing itself to the task of reading it. Which, I don't know, is a great explanation. And then it also, confusingly, says, RAM signifies random access memory, the amount of free memory the computer has access to. But it doesn't really describe what free means, and it doesn't, you know, like, it doesn't say it's changeable by the computer. So yeah, not a great description. It says, then, now onto the 5200, the new system has a new type of RF box that is not compatible with either the 2600 or any other existing home programmable. That means those arcaders with more than one home unit will have to detach the 5200 from the TV in order to connect up any other system. Then it says, finally, 5200 comes with a pair of joystick keypad controllers that are used primarily for game control and input devices, and that too, confusingly, is a direct quote. It's like, what... I don't know, very poor explanation there, game doctor. Of course it's a game control and input device. There's no mention of it being a potentiometer rather than switch based control? I think, like, alright, the game doctor needs to go back to game medical school or whatever. Here at the back of the magazine, there's a small little, like, half of one column ad, I guess a sixth of a page. For the video game update, which is that newsletter, it says a one-year subscription, $19, six-month trial, $9.95. It says for honest, no-nonsense reviews and up-to-the-minute information on all the game system, software, and accessories. Now, what to buy and what not to buy. And I've just said I'm really not going to look at that video game update thing anymore for this podcast series, the special series, and probably not for the regular podcast either. I may revisit that at some point, but the... You know the reviews are fine, whatever, but the sort of editorials are seen more on the like rumor mongery side than actual fact side. And um, yeah, and there's not a lot of fifty two hundred stuff in any of those that I could see. You know,
1: I flipped through most of them, and so yeah, I just don't think it's worth covering. So none of that. A difference of opinion. This is in reply to Nick Bames' letter, August eighty three, in which he puts down ColecoVision because he has an Atari fifty two hundred. Why also own an Atari eight hundred computer? I have a ColecoVision and enjoy both. I think Atari has some great games, but so does ColecoVision. I would like to know where he gets his sales figures from. I have never seen any sales figures on the 5200. The last I have heard on ColecoVision is 1.3 million. Also, why must the 5200 be more popular? ColecoVision can be expanded into a very powerful computer. It is also coming out with great games that far exceed anything the 5200 can come up with so far. The fact of the matter is that Mr. Bame is probably sorry he bought the 5200 instead of ColecoVision because they're coming out with the innovations and Atari is slipping behind right now. Robert D. Strong, San Antonio, Texas.
0: Here's a bit from the March 1983 analog computing. This is issue number 10 that I will cover in much more detail when we get there in the regular podcast. But in the reader comments section, there's a bunch of scathing comments about Atari and their management practices in regards to what was in the I guess, previous ep, uh, issue of Analog, where they apparently ra- railed at all the bad decisions Atari was making. And this one particular reader comment references a New York Times article of December 19th, 1982, which I will summarize in a second, but then relates it to the 5200 here in the comment, saying that Atari had hamstrung themselves by signing up with all these big box retailers to sell the four hundred eight hundred, thereby cutting out the small computer shops because the big box people could have smaller margins forcing the small shops to drop Atari support and that this author Jordan Powell of Carmel New York thinking that they had to keep the 400 and 800 prices higher because the 5200 had to be marketed in down in the $200 price slot you know essentially blaming the 5200 for the woes of the 400 and 800 being more expensive than the TI 994A and the C64 you know I think that's probably not necessarily the truth that the 5200 pricing related to the 400 and 800 pricing that much but let's look at the New York Times article that was referenced by this um, letter to the editor. This is from the December 19th, 1982 New York Times. I'll include a link to the show notes of a digitized version on the New York Times website. The article is by Andrew Pollock, and it's called The Game Turns Serious at Atari. It opens with, Working at Atari, Inc. is like playing one of the company's video games. It requires quick reflexes, and one's turn at the controls may be short-lived. Just in the last two weeks, three Atari executives, none of whom had been at the company for more than eight months, have been zapped. Such rapid-fire dismissals as well as resignations have become a trademark of the world's largest video game producer and of its mercurial chairman and chief executive officer, Raymond E. Cassar. It says Atari was a probably the fastest-growing company in the nation, says uh, climbing to about $2 billion in sales in a few years as the video game craze swept America, but then saying it was as stunning with the sudden announcement 11 days ago that Atari's parent Warner Communications expected a dramatic slump in fourth quarter per share earnings, the first such decline in 31 quarters, largely because of disappointing sales of Atari's video game cartridges. So the news said since stock of Warner Reeling and other game-related companies, and apparently analysts are now reassessing the company. One analyst said, I think one has to clearly question their controls in light of this, Another says there are some real fundamental questions posed for the long term. The author says Atari is in no means a dire situation, says the game industry is in general still growing. And while profit margins are still shrinking from the intense competition, says Warner is still expecting a five to 10% increase for all of 82. Then it goes on to some profit numbers and stuff. Um, says the profit is going to be less than what they were expecting based on the first three quarters, which is kind of what the analysts were, you know, hoping a continuing sort of upward trend. But as we know now, it's kind of, this is kind of the beginning of the crash, but they're still optimistic, at least based on the video game size, because it says its two other divisions have problems. The arcade game business has dropped into the red this quarter, and its home computer business, which has never been profitable, faces a market share battle. It goes on and says, one management problem Atari concedes it has, that its fixed costs have gotten out of line. Now, presumably fixed costs mean something particular in the sort of business news reporting area, so... Pause here. And apparently, it's stuff like um, overhead costs. Maybe is a, a easier way for me to understand it. it. Includes stuff that the company must pay, like you know, leases, uh, labor, equipment, um, stuff like that. I guess. So maybe they maybe it means they've gotten too big. That Atari has too many people, or other. Oh, I guess what other fixed costs would they have? Maybe they have invested too much in factories and stuff. It doesn't really specifically say that here in this article. Okay, here then it says, um, and in the New York Times habit of quoting, like, full names, Emmanuel Gerard. you know, we would sort of refer to him in Atari land as Manny Gerard. said the company would take a hard look at its overhead now that sales are less than expected. Yeah, so I guess overhead and fixed costs are, like, related. The article continues, another problem is rapid turnover. It says Mr. Cassar, 54 years old, has been trying to change Atari from a loosely organized band of engineers into a serious business-like market-oriented company. He recruited executives like himself with marketing experience but no electronics experience from companies such as Polaroid, Joven, and American Can. And we know who American Can was recruited. That was, um, shoot, we just talked about that in a, pre- a recent episode. Dang it, who was that? Okay, it was John Cavalier who replaced Roger Battisher as the new head of the um, home computer division. Yeah, so that was Mr. Cavalier. I'm falling into New York Times speak. Yeah, John Cavalier came from the, the Dixie-slash-marathon unit of the American Can company. As an additional aside before I get back to the article, Joven is a cosmetic and fragrance company. So of the three major divisions of Atari, the home computer, the arcade, and the home video game divisions, all three executives in charge of those have been dismissed in the last, like, six months from this article. Trying to put a spin on things, mister Gerard said turnover is the inevitable result of rapid growth. Atari had grown from less than two hundred million in revenues in seventy eight, just before mister Kassar took over to roughly ten times that in nineteen eighty two. Staff has mushroomed to ten thousand people, with four thousand added this year alone. They are spread among more than fifty buildings in Silicon Valley. The article continues with a quote from Mr. Girard. It says, The stresses and strains that are created by that kind of growth are phenomenal. You can't deal with the company as if it were General Electric, because it ain't, he said. The article goes on and says, Others say that turnover is a function of Mr. Cassar's style. They quote Robert A. Hovey, a former vice president of sales and marketing for the home computer division, saying, You can't build a stable organization without solid people. Yet, he said, Mr. Cassar does not delegate enough responsibility, making it hard to keep the strong-minded people he recruits. It says, other former managers describe Mr. Kassar as someone who changes his mind frequently both on the company direction and on which subordinates are in his favor. The article talks a little bit about the video game business, says the sales for the entire industry are expected to double to 2 billion in 1982, total evenly split between the machines and the game cartridges. But the article says, like with razors and razor blades, cartridges are more profitable than machines. Cartridges cost a few dollars to make and can sell for more than 40 at retail. And then according to estimates by Goldman Sachs, the cartridge sales accounted for 180 million of the 280 million in operating profit for Atari in 81. When the sales of cartridges fall short, the results go straight to the bottom line, it says. And then it outlines how competition kind of did Atari in because back in 81, Atari had about 80% of the market share and they sort of demanded that people for 1982 pre-order all of their stuff for the whole of 1982. But that was before they had a lot of competition. And then 1982 brought Coleco, Activision, Imagic, and Parker Brothers that were named here in the article. And all of a sudden, Atari started experiencing all these order cancellations toward the end of 82. The article says, Analysts wonder why Atari didn't realize until December how serious the cancellations were. And it quotes Manny Gerard saying, We were just dumb. Saying the company was blindsided because it never experienced that kind of massive order cancellation through competition before. Then it says Atari was also hurt because it had a weak lineup of games in the second half. It said it was depending on games licensing from E.T. and Raiders of the Lost Ark to be blockbusters, and they haven't. It says first quarter of 83, Atari is going to introduce five games derived from popular arcade games. And it says such games might restore the market share and could have made a difference if the company had had them before Christmas. Of course, on the other hand, they could have had an E.T. situation, you know, getting games rushed to market. That's my opinion. That's an aside there for me, not in the article. They quote Manny Gerard again, saying the company was lulled by its previous success, calling out Pac-Man, saying it wasn't a great version, but it still sold really well. And the article says it came out just before the competition hit and made Atari think it could sell virtually anything. It couldn't. Then it said events have implications for the industry as a whole. It said Mattel said it expects to lose money this current quarter. And, you know, here we now in the future know that this is the beginning of the crash, but this article seems to think it's just like a blip and that the business will recover. The article takes a bit of a dive into Atari's history, although wondering whether it's lost too much of its spirit and creativity, saying, you know, the first company was run by engineers in t-shirts, but that they couldn't finance their own growth and looked for somebody to buy them, which turned out to be Warner who bought them for $28 million in 1976 you know, at various times being called one of the greatest acquisitions ever. The article says, as the company has grown, it is being shifted to being market-driven rather than engineering-driven, and it's using its considerable financial muscle to license arcade games from others, mainly Japanese companies. So some analysts think Atari's become too dependent on others and hasn't designed enough of their own stuff, and then brings in Activision and how some of the top game designers left because they didn't feel like they were appreciated at Atari. It brings up Atari's legal action, you know, which we talked about before, like you know, the licenses for Pac-Man and suing all the Pac-Man clones, and there's a quote here in the article of the president of Coleco being quoted about Atari that they're seeking to win victory in court that they can no longer win in the market. And I can only imagine the glee at which the Coleco president was available for that quote. There's another quote from Manny Gerard saying, We went dry somewhere in the spring, talking of the lack of new games or hit games. The article says, Managerard says hopes that Pole Position might be one of the games that has the coin-op division turning around. The article says Atari's future may lie with its home computer division. The market for home computers rather than business computers has taken off this year, and Atari has seen its sales quadruple to an estimated 300 million. Since yet the division is still losing money, perhaps 25 to 50 million this year. Atari was the first company to clearly aim for the home market with a computer selling for only a few hundred dollars, as opposed to machines like the Apple that sell for more than a thousand. But recently, companies like Texas Instruments and Commodore have come on strong, and the price-market-share war has developed. And Jack Tramiel of Commodore is not going to lose a price war. He's going to kill Texas Instruments in just a little bit, and going to be one of the primary reasons that the Commodore 64 does as well as it does, because he undercuts everybody. The article concludes, it says Atari has many strong suits, it has a joint venture with Lucasfilm Limited, the producer of Star Wars, to design innovative new games, it has a tremendous advertising budget, estimated more than a million this year, and a prodigious research and development budget of almost the same size. It has hired Alan Kay, a highly regarded computer scientist, as its chief scientist, and told him to dream up new products. The article concludes with something called the Mysterious Falcon Project, Atari says it's going to introduce it next year, and it's not a game. It'll be the basis for a fourth division in the company, and speculation centers on a communications device, perhaps a telephone with computerized functions, or a device to be used with cable television systems. But analysts wonder why Atari is alerting everyone to the product's existence if it's really so marvelous. In the new atmosphere of lost innocence and heightened skepticism surrounding Atari, many would just rather wait and see. And as an aside, the Atari Falcon project is the Atari Tel, not related to the Atari Falcon, of course, of the ST lineage. And that's the end of the article. It's, uh, yeah, all the pieces were there. To, like, the crash is coming, but they didn't really connect it at that point.
1: A second look. In response to Nick Baim's letter, August 83, I have some facts for him to consider. One, the 5200 is not outselling ColecoVision. ColecoVision has sold over 1 million units, something the 5200, as of July 183, has not yet done. Two, ColecoVision has much more going for it. Where is the 5200 VCS emulator? As of July 1st, it can't be found in the Chicago area. The 5200 doesn't have an expansion interface, meaning any add-on devices will be more expensive. Coleco's trackball will be $10 cheaper and include a cartridge. The 5200 trackball won't include a cartridge. 3. 5200's baseball is an Intellivision lookalike, while ColecoVision's baseball could well be the most promising sport game ever. ColecoVision has licensing agreements with Sega, Exidy, Universal, Konami, and CBS, Valley Midway, to produce home games of their arcade games. And last but not least, Parker Brothers, Fox, MicroFun, iMagic, and Sirius Software plan to make games for ColecoVision. It seems to me the facts speak for themselves in proving which system is superior. Bob Ritter, Hoffman Estates, Illinois. The March 1983 Video Games Magazine says has a picture on the front of a bunch of
0: video game characters like Donkey Kong, Dig Dug, Donkey Kong Jr., Pac-Man, says the heat goes on, video games on trial, and plus rating the joysticks. There's nothing really 5200 specific in this issue, but I will look at this, you know, the the cover page article, which appears to be uh, uh, called The Great Debate Inside the Table of Contents saying three noted psychologists, an industry representative, and a community activist speak candidly about the pros and cons of video games. But you'd think they'd have a more sort of title in the table of contents that relates to the actual cover page, because otherwise it's confusing. I mean, there's another article in here that's interesting that I will look at. It says, Welcome to the Club, that women are entering the video game business like never before. And so there's an article here, but that's not really about the video games on trial. And actually, now that I read more closely, maybe it's this other, it's called Intruder Alert. What the coin-op industry desperately needs is some good old-fashioned public relations to ward off its sundry critics. So yeah, I don't know. The Maybe it's all three. Maybe all three were, like, video games on trial. And as we go to the editor's notes column called Hyperspace in this magazine, it, yeah, I think it's all three. It says, Video games are under attack. Either it's angry community groups attempting to banish arcades, doctors with questionable resumes speculating on the game's ill effects, or Wall Street analysts predicting their usual Easter basket of gloom and doom. Let's face it, we're getting it from all sides. So I guess it's two out of the three, Intruder Alert and The Great Debate. I guess they don't think the lack of women in the video games industry is enough of a thing to put the video games on trial. The 15200 reference in the whole magazine it comes in this blip section, where it's kind of their little short articles. It says that Atari plans to release a minimum of 10 games from the Children's Computer Workshop, saying 4 for the the VCS and 6 for the 5200. But that's the only 5200 reference in this whole thing. In this little blips area, they talk about a TV ad for the game Worm Wars 1, which is actually a typo that they repeat. It's actually Worm War 1, not Wars. We covered it in episode 27 of the podcast and found it was a kernel game, which I struggled to understand. But back to this video this tv commercial and it exists and it's fantastic i'm going to include a little snippet here just to bask in its fantasticness And so it is definitely clearly done by the same people, because it has a, a tank that looks almost exactly like the tank from Tron. And, you know, as you can imagine, <laughs> it's over-representing the graphics of the video game. It's specifically for the 2600 version, although as we've noted, it's not that much different than the 800 version, since they're both kernel games and, you know, the same vertical resolution, 192 lines. So graphically, they're virtually indistinguishable, the 2600 versus the 8-bit version. And so it periodically cuts back to the 2600 version after then spending most of the time in a 3D version of, you know, the Tron light cycle tank and all these sort of fairly well rendered 3D objects. And then the 3D, the little worms are rendered as sort of connected spheres and they, you know, kind of do their inchworm motion. Uh, Again, it's fantastic. you got to check out the video. Holding the microphone close to the screen does not do it justice. Please, please, please check it out. You will not be disappointed. Back down in the land of seriousness, they talk about, are video games a serious business? There was apparently a day-long video game seminar with Atari Research held at the Columbia University Computer Science Department. It was Chris Crawford, manager of Atari's Game Research Group, creative consultant Chris Cerf, and Warren Robinette, the co-founder of The Learning Company. So that would have been a wonderful seminar to attend. There's a little brief about the state of arcades, saying the average video game game earnings per machine has gone down in eighty-two. So it was climbing from you know zero before nineteen seventy-seven up to a peak in nineteen eighty-one of about one hundred and forty dollars per machine per week. But in eighty two it's down to one hundred and nine dollars per machine per week, so kind of presaging the crash that's coming. And we also have a manufacturer's market share list saying, Valley Midway owns 33% of the market share of arcade games, Atari is next with 23%, then it's down to Williams with 11 and Nintendo with 10 and nobody else has more than 6%. In the Great Debate article, they have five people they've brought together to essentially talk about how bad video games are for kids. So there's a quote in here that leading off the article is a quote from the Surgeon General at the time, C. Everett Koop, who said, apparently in a uh, speech in the end of 82 said video games may be hazardous to the health of young people. More and more people are beginning to understand adverse mental and physical effects of video games on pre-teenage and teenage children. There's nothing constructive in the games. Everything is eliminate, kill, destroy. And that was at a speech, and then apparently it kind of blew up, you know, going viral in newspapers of the day. And then he retracted his statement later, saying, this represented my personal judgment and was not based on any documented scientific evidence, nor does it represent the official view of the public health service. He said, nothing in my remarks should be interpreted as implying video games are per se violent in nature or harmful to children. But clearly, if he said it at a speech, he had some reason to say it. And so the magazine here brought together five people to debate this point. The first was Dr. Joyce Brothers, who's a syndicated newspaper and TV columnist, a psychologist, one of the first to sort of popularize psychology and its acceptance in the media. The next was Ronnie Lamb, who's the president of the Long Island, New York, PTA. The article says she was spearheading a drive to stop the proliferation of arcades in her community and continues to urge for regulation of amusement centers in general. Next is Don Osborne, VP of sales and marketing for the Atari's coin-op division. Next is Mitchell Robin, who has an interesting combination of jobs, a professor of child psychology and data processing. And finally, Dr. Philip Zimbardo, who's a professor of psychology at Stanford. He wrote a famous book on shyness and was also responsible for the Stanford Prison Experiment, which went famously awry and had to be stopped after only a small portion of the experiment was completed. There's four pages of interview text where Video Games Magazine poses four questions. The first is, do games pose a threat to young Americans? Dr. Brothers says no in general unless it becomes like an obsession and they don't do their homework and stuff. Essentially saying pa- parents should be involved and know what's going on. Ms. Lamb says that in the world that has so many problems, the zapping and killing of things, what's that doing to the consciousness of our children? It's an easy form of warfare where children don't see the blood and guts and victims. Mr. Osborne, our Atari guy, says he doesn't see games as threatening at all, that the kids understand that it's just a game, that there's been a tremendous amount of distortion as to the amount of time the kids are doing these games. Mr. Robin, the child psychology slash data processing professor, says he doesn't think the video games are a threat either, saying he's done some research and says that games are probably beneficial if used properly, essentially limiting their use. The exception is that kids who become addicted to it or have difficult family lives and don't understand how to control their own lives and escape into the games, but saying that's a minority. Dr. Zimbardo relates it to shyness in saying that he sees the games as encouraging isolation, that it increases the amount of time they're not relating to other people. And is this going to prepare them to be social creatures? And his answer is that it won't. This says, to me, life is all about learning how to relate and cultivate social resources, and games tend to make those irrelevant at best. The next question Video Games poses is, what are the pros and cons of video games, and is there a reason to get excited about playing video games? Ms. Lamb says, yeah, hand-eye coordination does get developed with these games, but for the average child, it's not useful unless they're going to enroll them in the Air Force, she says. Do you need me to sing the song again, or no? No? Okay, we'll continue. Mr. Robin says that games might be beneficial to the kids who just, like, you know, aren't great athletes, and, you know, they can be good at something. Saying that in the past, sort of, athletics was the way to go to be, you know, accepted, and that maybe that'll give a boost to kids who find they're good at something. Our Atari guy, Mr. Osborne, says there's no question that hand-eye coordination improves significantly, and other visual skills are improved as a result of playing, which is probably a little wishful thinking there on his part, but saying it'll definitely be beneficial to kids down the road. The next video game question is, what is it about games that make them so captivating? Miss Lam, our resident curmudgeon, says, you know, all the lights and noise, it's super exciting, but saying it's spoon-feeding kids And jobs that require real work, and she names accountants, attorneys, doctors, plumbers, electricians, that's not how they do it. It's like stuff's not lit up for those jobs to tell them what to do next. She says rather listen to music and have your kids read books. She says she just can't accept the instant gratification and the feeling of success theories, and rather that video games are just meaningless activity. Mr. Atari says that where he lives in San Jose, more and more rec programs are being taken away from kids because cities can't fund them. Instead, video games haven't gone up since 1972. It's exciting and active involvement and an opportunity to extend one's fantasy world, and that video games provide entertainment and laughing, and are a diversion from the oppression of reality. Dr. Zimbardo says that video games are an incredible challenge, and there's little that poses the equivalent challenge to video games in young people. You can play without adult supervision, without elaborate instructions, and you can improve simply by practicing on your own. It's not external motivation, it's intrinsic. And like the instantaneous nature of the feedback makes the learning faster and it's part of the excitement of the game. Video Games Magazine asks, Is there any scientific research being done regarding video games? Dr. Brothers comes back and says, Little that I know of, it's been a difficult subject to get funding for. And then she says, I don't think research will be particularly useful anyway because by the time it's published the kids will be on to something else. Kids of today would like to have a word. Mr. Osborne, our Atari guy, says that the VA is studying some stuff, claiming without specific reference that it's been helped in rehab centers. He also says the Atari Institute has funded a number of worthy educational programs involving the use of computer, but he says, let's face it, if Atari funded any study, the results would probably be considered biased. Which is clearly true, you know, if they funded something and it didn't say what they wanted to, they'd just bury it. He says funding really needs to come from objective third parties. Dr. Zimbardo said he's aware of a few things, a couple at Stanford and one at MIT. Saying, at MIT, Dr. Sherry Turkle is writing a book on various aspects of video games, and she's one who's been researching the subject the longest. And did I say there are four questions? Actually, there are six. So I can't count very well. So this is uh, question five out of four, and we'll have question six out of four in just a minute. So do you or your children play games? Mrs. Lamb says that neither of her two kids frequents arcades, and that very occasionally they'll let their kids have like 50 cents to go to an arcade. Mr. Osborne says he plays about 30 minutes a day, which is not as much as he'd like to. And working at Atari, he said 75% of his playing is business-oriented, which is a nice perk to have, of course, And that they have a VCS at home and he has two kids, but he says he has more problems with comic books than video games. Dr. Zimbardo says he's not much of a game player, he's played him, but his son is an addict who's 20 and goes to Stanford, and that he's done surveys and interviews with other self-confessed video game addicts for his own studies at Stanford. And then now, finally, question 6 out of 4, Video Games says, what do you foresee as the future of video games in our society? Dr. Brothers says it's kind of a fad, saying that last year the Rage was Rubik's Cube, this year it's video games, and next year it'll be something else. Although she says, I suppose the next generation of games will require more imagination, but once the hand-eye coordination is mastered, there's little else there. Mrs. Lamb says video games are going to continue to be part of the future, and she's just hoping that as they become more a part of the culture, they'll be more controlled by the parents. Mr. Osborne says that video games will continue to advance, the interactive quality will increase, and that they might blend with other forms of recreation or entertainment, saying that, like, full families might go to arcades together and play games where they act out an entire story, but together, you know, as everybody contributing to the same game. Mr. Robbins says, Alvin Toffler was right, we're going through future shock, and we just haven't yet realized how we're going to respond to this technology, saying that the current response is kind of an old-time morality, but offering no suggestions on how to change that. And finally, Dr. Zimbardo finishes up the article, saying that because video games are reinforced the idea of how to be optimally destructive, he thinks that there might be a long-term negative impact on society. He says the long-range impact might be that you have a generation of males who are reinforced to have a cognitive structure where you don't know where fantasy stops, saying it could be dangerous 10 to 20 years from now. It's like a military mentality, which we already have enough of now, he says. says, on the other hand, it could be... That video games are reprogrammed to be more positive, to code the games to teach interdependence with other humans, or cooperation. But regardless of if it's negative or positive, it's going to play an important role in our lives for years to come. The next article is Intruder Alert by Ray Tilly, and it sort of focuses on the arcade aspect of games and the negative publicity surrounding it. It says, how does public enemy number one fight back? With a publicity campaign, of course. Talking that coin-op manufacturers, distributors, and operators are now faced with their greatest challenge, the reactionary groups and politicians who want to squash the arcade business. It says for the coin-op industry to repel its critics and their relentless attacks, it needs to improve its image. And it says in the public's mind, arcades are associated with seediness, petty crime, and moral corruption. And it says that's why it's a relief to see at least a few signs that the industry is awaking to the need to deal with its serious public relations problem. A PR firm put out this 116-page manual. It says a community relations manual for the coin-op amusement games industry and says that the people opposed to video games tend to be in five categories, either community leaders, teen haters, like older people with no school-age children, who are convinced that arcades breed juvenile delinquency, then neighboring businesses who complain about vandalism and shoplifting, local politicians who just see vote-getting opportunities and oppositions to arcades, and then law enforcement officials who fear the destructive capabilities of teens and groups. This is basically a lot of problems involve just fighting stereotypes, and for instance, having a clean, well-run, and well-lit arcade can solve the problem of the delinquent teenagers issue by supplying a more supervised-appearing atmosphere. Another argument was raised about hypocrisy. There was a religious group in Clayton County, Georgia, that said Sundays were dedicated to the Sabbath, and so they wanted to have all coin-op places closed on Sundays. But then some of the arcade owners got together and said it was clear they were talking about targeting arcades only because they weren't talking about keeping all the businesses closed in the county on Sundays. And I remember the discovery of Blue Laws when I lived in the South was a very weird thing. You know, moving to the South and then driving to the mall on a Sunday and finding it closed for the entire day was very strange. Anyway, they talk about Atari who has its community awareness program which produced a video. It said that the article saying anyway that it was an even-handed look at both sides of the argument and that Atari recommends that distributorships have like a full-time PR person to handle some of this to um, like interface with the operators on these kind of issues. And they say if anyone doubts the sincerity of the people who oppose arcades They say, turn back the clock 25 years for evidence to the contrary, saying that the comic book industry was the target of these self-appointed apostles, it says, to clean up the comic books, which resulted in congressional hearings, and a lot of pressure, which resulted in the squashing of the creativity of the comics. And essentially saying, if they don't do something now, that's the way the arcades are going to go. Before we get to the article on women in the industry, there's 15 pages on secrets to video games where they have one page on each of the games, including some luminaries as Tron, Millipede, Dig Dug, Donkey Kong Jr., Moon Patrol, and Joust, as well as two video games I despise, Jungle Hunt, and Frontline. The article on women in the game business is called Welcome to the Club. It's written by Ann Kruger. subtitle is, Having liberated the arcades, women are just starting to make their presence felt in the mostly male game business. The author's a game player saying, started out liking Space Invaders, one of the few women to play it, and then a few years later fell in love with Pac-Man. But this the Pac-Man time was different in that both women and men were playing it, whereas she was one of the few to play Space Invaders. She says that Bally Midway says that now women are about 30% of the game-playing population in arcades, and saying it was once rare for a woman to be hired in one of the game companies, but in her research, she found 15 women in positions related to game development. The first woman she talks to is Hope Neiman, who's the director of marketing at General Consumer Electronics, and says most women working in business are traditionally working in, like, ad agencies or marketing firms, and that women just haven't held high-level positions in other companies, so they can't cross over to the game business. Saying in any business, networks are important, but they're usually set up among the good old boys who've been around the industry, and that consequently men hire other men. Next, she talks to Donna Bailey, who she said avoided this Catch-22 situation by simply quitting her job at General Motors and signing up with Atari's coin-op division in 1980, and that Centipede was her first project, saying that she likes pastels, which is why there's so many pinks and greens and violets. She wanted it to look different and to be visually arresting. Then Ed Logg, who is the co-developer of Centipede, was quoted as saying, Centipede was definitely aimed at the women's market, and that without Donna's viewpoint, it wouldn't have ever made it there. Next, the article quotes Susan Forner who is at Dave Nutting Associates, which is a subsidiary of Valley Midway? I didn't realize that. Anyway, Susan Forner says that the demand for quality programming is intensely competitive, making sex discrimination less of a problem. Saying it's not so much a question of what women can bring to video games, but what artists can bring that engineers can't, namely appealing graphics. It says she's a self-taught artist who studied computer science at the University of Illinois before going to Nutting, saying, I see more and more women in engineering departments taking programming courses that people used to think were too hard. It's getting to the point where it doesn't matter whether you're a woman, but how many programming languages you know. Next, the author talks to Janice Hendricks, who is the artist who designed the graphics for Joust, and she became interested in the field when she worked for SIGGRAPH, which is the computer graphics show, saying that stuff she saw there took her breath away, and that never knew you could combine art with programming to produce such wonderful graphics. She had been in school in psychology, but after that, she decided to get a master's in engineering, and later was hired at Dave Nutting & Associates. And there's a quote from Dave Nutting, who thinks it's totally fine to call his female employees girls, and has a lot of sexist stereotypes going on, saying women are better at creating the patterns, imagery, and atmosphere for games. They have more of a sense of feeling and color than men do. Games done by men work fine, but they usually will look a bit stiff. Despite surely dealing with all sorts of that stuff at her workplace, Hendrick says it's a good place to get started at nutting. You're allowed to drift around and find out what you're good at. It's like school. The author then talks to Mary Patak, who said she wouldn't mind enrolling at this school because she recently left an engineering position at Honeywell to go on maternity leave, but she'd like to join her husband Tom at this DNA university, as they call Nutting's firm. She says, when I was in college, women weren't encouraged to go for math or engineering degrees. I think it's changing, but I don't expect this to change that much. The numbers will probably just even out. They have some stats from a couple colleges. At Columbia University, only four of the 32 students in the PhD program are women in the computer science department, But saying there's more and more applications than ever. And Barnard College, which it says is Columbia's sister school, the CS department has grown to 50 women in its three years of existence. And then they talked to Linda Everett. Who says, along with her husband Ed, designs games for the Odyssey Two? But her quote is at least fifty percent of software graduates are now women. But I don't know where they get that number. So I think that's an optimistic percentage, I would think. He even says her degree is in engineering physics because computer science was not offered at the school she attended. And it says the average are responsible for like Casey Munchkin and several other games for the Odyssey Two, but saying in a switch that Linda usually does the programming while Ed creates the graphics saying probably the most successful husband-wife team is now Roberta and Ken Williams. Roberta's a self-taught programmer who specializes in adventure games, and that she was disappointed with the games for the Apple, so she created her own mystery house. But in an odd mistake, says she produced Zork, a 12-disc epic. Which, yeah, clearly a mistake, because, I don't know what, they must have made some other game, because that's certainly not Zork, that was Infocom. But also worked with Henson & Associates on the computer game based on Dark Crystal. The article says Roberta believes women are better than men at writing and verbal communication and that men, according to her, usually excel at math and logic. So writing an adventure game is easier for a woman to do. It's like screenwriting. So we got stereotypes going all directions here. Roberta Williams says that more women are definitely getting into all aspects of the business but doesn't see them coming in in droves, saying only a handful of the hundred or so freelancers that work for Sierra are women and she thinks it'll remain a male-dominated business. And the strain of working in a male-dominated field can result in fraternity burnout, is what Donna Bailey said, because she recently left Atari and joined Vedea, who as we know will become Nolan Bushnell's company when he comes out of his, you know, blackout period from Atari. She said being the only woman in the coin op division slowly wore down to the point where she had to quit, and that Vedea, founded by these three ex-Atarians, felt more comfortable, and that the lack of comfort at Atari was reflected in her work, or lack of it, she said. She did say Atari was always trying to hire more women, but the percentage of women applying was really low, and maybe that women are discouraged by the male domination in this business. Videya felt like home to her, because she's back working with Ed Rotberg and Howie Delman, she said, who she worked with previously at Atari. The article concludes talking to Sue Courier who's a co-partner with her husband at SoftSync Incorporated, saying that being a woman can be an advantage. She said when she started, she didn't know anything about the business, but everyone taught her, saying, I don't know if I were a man that they would have taken to that. She and her husband became the main suppliers for the Timex Sinclair 1000, she said, and she believes that many female programmers are hesitant to submit programs, which is a shame, she said, because I, I maintain women can do anything they want, and sometimes we're our own worst enemies. It's too bad the article chose to end on that statement, sometimes we're our own worst enemies. I think probably a more appropriate ending would have been what Donna Bailey said, maybe women are discouraged by the male domination in this business. Clearly there's a lot of gatekeeping and stuff going on, and the idea like a boss felt it okay, or even normal, to call the women working for him girls is an example of the sexism that women were up against in the whole, you know, game development industry. It certainly was nice to hear opinions from women working in the industry. But I'm just disappointed they chose to end it on such a note like it was the women's fault for all this happening. There was a little sidebar in the article. It said the myth of Pac-Man and other related topics. It was also written by Ann Kruger, the same author of the the larger article. But it says, since most women were introduced to video games via Pac-Man, and since Pac-Man is so cute and cuddly, popular industry wisdom says women only want to play so-called cute games. True or false? Let's just call it a myth. This myth and other myths surrounding female game-playing attitudes should be demolished once and for all. And then it lists five myths. Number one, women play easier games than men. And they quote Janice Hendricks saying that most female gamers are beginners, and, you know, beginners naturally prefer games that have simpler controls and are easier to understand. Implying, of course, that once somebody moves beyond being a beginner, they will move to more difficult games. And that theme is picked up by Kathy Novak, who is a market research manager at Bally Midway, saying that women's aversion for complex controls and complicated games will pass saying it's all due to indoctrination. It's easier to start with simple games and then advance more complex ones that require more strategy and offer a greater challenge. And it says, it offers herself up as an example, quoting her as saying, I worked here for almost a year before I played any games at all. They intimidated me, but not anymore. And it moves to myth number two, women prefer simple controls. So there's something quoted here as the brain dichotomy theory, which says women have better reflexes but don't think in the abstract as well as men do. Alright, so pause, let me look that up. And I found several articles and scientific papers talking about differences in brain development and stuff, but none that specifically mentioned that, so I don't know where they're getting that data. Maybe that was a pop culture thing back then that I just don't remember. But the article continues saying, Freelance game designer Tim Skelly suggests this may explain why women generally dislike spatial games like Asteroids and Defender, saying those left, right, thrust, fire, multi-button, flying-type games require an intuitive sense of what position your spaceship is in saying you have to visualize all that stuff in your head and f- to figure out which button you need to press, saying that games like Centipede and Pac-Man, which have more conventional controls, don't require spatial play, and do not you don't have to visualize everything in your head, he says. But Janice Hendrick says she doesn't buy that, contending its conjecture is quite far from proven, and Susan Forner says that women are meticulous and can handle the most complex set of controls. Any of these generalizations, you know, the sort of one or the other type things, I mean, I'm miserable at Defender, I hate it, because it's... Yeah, there's too many buttons, I can't figure it out. But saying, like, because I'm a man, I should like it, that's, yeah, it's ridiculous. I mean, they're sort of this, you know, one of the other binary is not as a spectrum, that maybe that was the whole issue of the 80s, that not accepting things in a spectrum. Myth number three is women just like to look at pretty colors. And they talked to Donna Bailey, who wrote Centipede, and she says color has a lot to do with it, but conceding that color especially is important to women, and saying, I never heard any complaints from men about Centipede, except from a lot of guys at Atari. But that quote is not expanded on, so I don't, I wonder what the Atari folks, you know, her coworkers essentially were telling her about the game. You know, it was, it was too colorful or too, you know, oddly colored. That would have been interesting to explore. But then they have a quote here from Tim Skelly saying, in his opinion, that colors are, are of equal significance to both men and women. Myth number four is good girls play cute games, and talking to Donna Bailey again about Centipede, saying most of the games I play, men don't seem to like, but one we agree on is Centipede. It's easy to learn, tough to master, and combines personality, humor, simple controls, and attractive graphics. It continues with some of her comments about Robotron, saying that she really enjoys playing it, and that while doing so, it's challenged some of the things I've been thinking about women in games. Since I like it so much, it's forced me to consider whether games really need some sort of peace-loving quality to them. Robotron's a shoot-em-up, but it's not advocating violence or mindless slaughter. Robotron is funny without being a cartoon, and I really respect it a lot. And finally, myth number five is good girls don't play games at all. Here's a quote from Jules Savadellis, who's a software product manager in the Consumer Division at Atari, saying, Women traditionally haven't participated in games, it's just not something we were introduced to earlier in life. And then they quote Janice Hendricks saying her 12-year-old sister took an eight-week computer course last summer and said, If women are exposed to things at that age, the awkwardness will certainly disappear. And that right there is really the appropriate conclusion to this article. Normalize this stuff at a young age, and all the differences disappear. There's a four-page article on joysticks by Perry Greenberg. Trackballs, button controllers, and sticks of every shape and size are now available for TV game play. With the right one, you can even increase your Pac-Man score. And it looks like these are all Atari joystick replacements. They begin on this big list of controllers talking about the Wicco Command Control series, both with the bat handle and the red ball. The bat handle is $30 and the red ball is 35 And the author said his scores on Donkey Kong and Pac-Man improved. Well, slightly, he said. Another standout stick is one I've never seen before, the D-Zine Super Stick looks like it's an arcade stick in a sort of rectangular box, but interestingly, the button is directly, like, north of the joystick. So I guess it could be used equally well with both hands, but the reviewer said that the box it was in is just too big to hold in your hand, so it only works on a tabletop. But he said it's one of the best for emulating coin-op feel and movement. I talk about Zircon's Video Command stick, which is that stick that was made from the Fairchild Channel F controller. I recommend it for gamers looking for comfort and have a very light touch. Talks about SpectraVision's QuickShot, which is cheap, like 14 bucks, and very clicky. A company called Cinex makes the GameMate 2, which looks like a remote control version of the Atari CX40. There's an antenna at the end of the stick. Well, I guess it's kind of the, the top part of the base, and it connects to this base unit, which I guess is the part you plug into the computer. They say it plays and feels exactly like Atari's. There's Point Pointmaster which is $13. It's got a fire button on the top, but it says it's kind of uncomfortable to hold. The Suncom Starfighter is $17. It's small, has a short handle, but it's uncomfortable to hold, this reviewer says. They also have the Slick Stick, which is a cheaper version of the Starfighter, selling for only $10, but saying the Slick Stick is no improvement over its more expensive cousin. Another disappointment is the $30 control from Games, saying the huge California mail order house. It's called the Super Joystick. It says unattractive and uncomfortable and can't compete with newer models that cost half as much. Then there's a couple other controllers. There's a couple button-only controllers. The creatively named Video Game Controller from Starplex. It looks like it's laid out kind of like an Asteroids panel. And there's the Ken Yankelovitz uh, fingertip controller that where the buttons are laid out in kind of a diamond pattern. And then finally they go over the Wicco trackball, saying it's terrific, but it's also $70. There's a little sidebar on Kenyan Kellevitz, saying he designs controllers for the disabled. That's pretty much a rehash of the same stuff that was covered in the February issue of Electronic Games that we covered earlier in this very own episode right here. There's an article about the Fairchild Channel F. says, The System Nobody Knows. It's by Roger Dion. The article talks about how it was the first cartridge-based system and how it was rapidly displaced by the VCS in the programmable cartridge niche. It doesn't go over much more of the history than that, and it certainly doesn't mention Jerry Lawson as the designer of the Channel F. This is why they even talking about this system now? Apparently Zircon bought out the whole lot, the remaining lot of Channel F, and they're trying to market them for $60 a piece. So there's only 2,000 Channel Fs left. It goes over quite a number of games, and the general conclusion are there are not very many, many that are worth mentioning. Among the best of the 20 or so cartridges it talks about is Casino Royale, which is a card game. Dodge It, which is kind of what it says. You're a blue square that you you have to dodge a bouncing ball that's ping-ponging off the walls. And finally, Robot War, which it says is essentially berserk without guns. In conclusion, it says there are only three reasons why you'd buy a Channel F at this point for strictly nostalgic purposes as a collector item or to play a convincing hand of video poker. It is certainly not a competitor to the 5200. Next is a teeny little article about Imagic's IPO. It was supposed to have happened in December, but it says, Due to the sudden market decline, Imagic postponed its offering until early 83. Early and it said, According to an Imagic spokesperson, the Warner Communications earning drop and subsequent stock slide caused unsettled feelings at Imagic. Unfortunately, rightly so, and... Yeah, I'm afraid to be the bearer of bad news, the magic people, but you're not going to go public at all. They had these huge expectations. Like the pre- the president, Bill Grubb, said a magic sales might exceed 75 million in fiscal year 83, and by 1985, the company could be worth 500 million. And I guess that's the problem with, like, doing a forecast with data points that are really close together, because, you know, a small little slope extending out to a large distance can be way off from the final result. They had been going, you know, great said from April to September the company's sales were nearly 35 million compared to 3.9 million for the previous 10 months and their profit had risen from less than half a million to over 6 million in that period. You know, investors were kind of bullish on it, you know, saying that Imagine can only be hurt by the quality of its own games, not by having backed a losing hardware system, which they said was the Astrocade's fate. What went unnoticed was that they will suffer from the lack of quality of other people's games, the inertia of that dragging down everybody and ultimately, not only cancelling Imagic's IPO, but cratering the entire company. Their last games were published in 1984, although none were published for the 5200, while of course they did have several for the 8-bits. They had an amazing name for their fan club, the Numb Thumb Club, and they even had the Numb Thumb News, which was a newsletter that unfortunately only had two issues. And finally in this magazine, there's a little article, Atari vs. Coleco and Imagic, This Means War, It's about Atari suing both Coleco and Imagic for different things, but saying they're suing Imagic for demon attack resembling Phoenix, which Atari held the video game rights to. Apparently Atari had waited, it says here, nearly nine months to challenge uh, Imagic in court, and there are various theories as to why that happened. One was that they were waiting for damages to accrue, I suppose meaning that Imagic could make enough money that they could actually pay Atari then. But another said that it was probably not a coincidence that it was filed right when Imagic set a date for its IPO, and that Atari suing Coleco was for Coleco's VCS-compatible adapter. Atari saying that it was a VCS in disguise and that it infringed on two patents and requested an injunction. It says the discovery process is currently transpiring. Also in this article, it has what must be a follow-up to the Casey Munchkin Case that Atari brought against uh, the Odyssey console and that Magnavox's parent, North American Philips, apparently is preparing a like a long for a long lengthy trial. Even though the case to the Supreme Court was denied, saying that the Seventh Circuit Court in Chicago is going to hear
1: the appeals case. Apparently,
0: and with that, we're finally done with this magazine that took a long time to record.
1: Nicked again. I'm commenting on a letter printed in August '83 issue concerning ColecoVision and the Atari 5200. I am a ColecoVision owner, and I think that ColecoVision is the better system. The Atari 5200 has better resolution, 25%. Why don't they use it? Look at the 5200 Kangaroo, and you'll notice that the roof under which the baby Roo is standing looks like low-resolution Atari 2600 material. You'll never see anything like that on ColecoVision. ColecoVision's graphics are more colorful and detailed, Compare Zaxxon with any game from any video system and you'll see why ColecoVision is the best. Coleco has Buck Rogers, Time Pilot, and Satan's Hollow among other great games coming out this year. Also coming this year are the Super Action Controllers packaged with Contact Baseball, which puts Atari 5200's baseball to shame. I also understand that there are more ColecoVisions sold than Atari 5200's, contradicting what was printed in the last issue. It is plain to see that ColecoVision is the more promising system. Richard Squibbs, Stratford, Connecticut. Editor. You're correct. ColecoVision has sold better than the Atari 5200. Also, ColecoVision does have better background resolution than Atari's 5200. And while the 5200 will soon accept an expansion module to allow you to play at 2600 games, ColecoVision will also expand in the near future into a technically advanced personal computer system. There are no plans, however, to expand the 5200 into a computer.
0: In the Atari Age magazine of March and April 83, it's volume 1, number 6, there's a teeny little bit of 5200 info, starting off with an article in the Inside Atari section about how Atari makes a game console. They say Atari stuff is manufactured in Hong Kong, Puerto Rico, Ireland, and Sunnyvale. These assembly plants around the world handle the tremendous demand for the Atari 2600, 5200, and 3 home computer models. They said to see how it's done, they visited the Atari manufacturing plant at 1195 Borregas Avenue in Sunnyvale, saying found hundreds of people and some very sophisticated automated machinery busily putting together Atari 5200 consoles. On one side of the room, we saw racks and bins of parts, over 400 individual parts which go into every Atari 5200. In the building next door, completed 5200 units were getting a final test before being shipped out. So he said there's four major steps in manufacturing. One is getting the pieces ready, saying that Atari doesn't manufacture the parts, but they use both custom-made and off-the-shelf components, but the custom-made parts aren't made there in this facility. So once the parts are checked out with like visual inspections, they're put into places on circuit boards in two ways, either auto-insertion or hand-insertion. So the majority of components are inserted by machine, saying it resembles something like a stapler. As the printed circuit board moves beneath the machine, it punches down and sticks the component into the correct spot. It says 264 different components are put into position in 55 seconds using this sort of automated procedure. Then after that, more parts are inserted by hand to the point where the 367 components on the board The assembly line action continues, and it moves the printed circuit board into something called a wave soldering machine, which says it passes the bottom of the board over a wave of flux, and then into a sea of molten solder, and then all the components are instantly soldered into position. It says as the boards come out of the solder swim, the boards are washed down, dried, and placed onto another assembly line where workers insert components which are too heat sensitive to survive wave soldering. At that point, the board reaches the end of the line, and it's placed on a testing unit, Presumably by hand, because it says a technician throws a switch and a suction is created under the board, pulling it down onto a grid that makes contact with every circuit on the board. It says the unit tests it all and prints out a report, apparently indicating anything that has a problem. And if they found a problem, the board goes to a special area where a team of experts fix it and retest it thoroughly. Then after passing the test, it says completed boards move on to another area where they're placed in the sleek plastic outer shell of an Atari 5200 console. And it's not just the electronics that the inspectors check for after that. It says we saw them reject a unit because of a scratch in the case that we never would have noticed. And it says finally consoles, controllers, power adapters, and switchbox in- and instruction manuals, and a super breakout cartridge are all packed into boxes and ready for shipment. Almost. Having performed quality checks every step of the way, there's still room for one more, and several boxes are taken off shelves of completed pack units to be open and fully checked out as a final step before the Atari units are ready. There's a little announcement for the Atari 1200XL computer, my very first computer. It says combining sleek, ultra-modern styling with a full 64K RAM, the largest ever for an Atari computer, the model 1200XL has just arrived. New features include 12 programmable function keys and a help key to give users additional information if they need it while running a program. And they have a picture, a nice little kind of elevated side-on kind of view that shows the, the shininess of the new plastic. But that's all it says. is just like a little quarter page, a little picture on the corner of one of the pages. On that same page, it says, Another great summer ahead for Atari computer camps. And that opens with a quote. It really broadened my mind in terms of computers. It gave me something to work with for the rest of my life, and I can't wait to go back. That was a quote from a 13-year-old boy named Evan. This is Evan and dozens of other young people aged 10 through 16 enjoyed all the usual sports, games, and activities found at a regular sleepaway camp plus a unique computer education experience. And for summer 1983, Atari has expanded the computer camp program to seven campsites nationwide. And it doesn't list those seven camps, but just says, write to Atari computer camps in New York, New York, or call a 1-800 number. Or in New York State and Canada, call Collect. One of the mentions of the 5200 is uh, announcing Tempest Saying they said it couldn't be done, the fantastic color quadra-scan graphics of Atari's revolutionary coin-op game, Tempest, could never be brought to the home video screen. Well, Atari designers now have the state-of-the-art sophistication of the 5200 game system at their disposal. And with it, they are conquering the challenge of bringing Tempest home. It says estimated time of arrival, summer 83. We'll keep you posted. And there's a bunch of stuff. This is a real sports issue, so it talks about the real sports stuff for the 2600 mostly. But in the 5200 Flash section, they talk about baseball and tennis. Baseball is going to be available in April, and tennis also in April. Both those are $32 through the club. Kicks available in March will be 32 and then Vanguard available in May will be $40. The console
1: itself is $250 as a club member. The great debate continues. In response to a letter in the September issue that says the Atari 5200 is the best and most promising system around, What about ColecoVision? I think ColecoVision should be given equal space illustrating that it is the best. In addition to releasing Atom, the family computer, Coleco will also be coming out with Roller Controller packaged with Slither. Another thing to look for is Coleco Super Action Controllers. These include a 3D game called Super Action Baseball. Now, after reading this, I hope you'll agree that ColecoVision is the only system you'll ever need. Joseph Venezia, Miami, Florida. Here we are at the end of the first quarter of
0: 1983. There'll be, what, three more episodes of 1983 stuff, I think, at this rate. We'll have to see. And then I think I'll probably combine the 1984 stuff into just a single episode because it kind of winds down. You know, the 5200 is discontinued early in in 84. Again, we'll have to see how it goes because I haven't actually planned out that far and haven't looked through all the magazines to see how much coverage the 5200 still gets into 84. that's a ways away, and we'll have a bunch of episodes of the regular podcast timeline mixed in with all this stuff. All the letters to the editor readings you've heard in this episode from Mike Whalen are all from Video Games Magazine starting in August of 83 and then extending on into subsequent months. And this will be kind of the theme of the letters to the editor for this whole 5200 series, is this ongoing battle of the ColecoVision fans and the 5200 fans. As Mike said to me as we were you know, discussing how to include all these you know, fun back-and-forth letters to the editor, they said it's like Usenet in slow motion. So thanks again to Mike for recording all that stuff. There's plenty more where this came from, and they've got a bunch of stuff to share with you on these next, you know, whatever it is, four more episodes to go in the 5200 versus 8-bit series. Nick Bame really sets something off here, and it lasts for a long time. Neither side seems to want to give up anything. Next episode, we'll do a regular podcast timeline episode. It'll be January, 1983. I'm going to introduce a new magazine to the podcast. It's called Personal Computer World, which is a UK magazine that is kind of in the vein of creative computing or compute in that it's not specific to one computer, but covers a lot of different you know, manufacturers, including Atari. And in addition, the magazine seems to have you know, sort of longer form articles about computing life in the UK and you know, other things that aren't just like program listings. So it looks like a fun magazine to cover. We'll uh, add that to the podcast and see how it goes. Thanks to Steve Boswell for pointing that out to me. I hadn't heard of the magazine before. And as he listened to the last regular podcast episode where I added Page Six and Atari I.O. to the coverage, it got us talking about uh, UK magazines. So yep, we'll add it to the podcast and thereby increasing the number of magazine issues that I do not have a physical copy of. If you happen to have physical copies of Personal Computer World, or, like, compute, I'm still missing a bunch of computes, I'm doing pretty good on, you know, analogs, antics, and creative computings, thanks to a bunch of people like Kay Savitz, Bill Kendrick, Kevin Lund, and John Groover. But in lieu of this being a free podcast, if you happen to want to donate some magazines to the cause, I would certainly appreciate that. So until next time, if you've got some games that make ColecoVision owners drool, you can talk to me about it on Twitter, I'm at Atari8BitGames. Or if you've got a stack of magazines taking up way too much space in your place and want to offload that to me, send me an email about it at feedback at playermissile.com. Thanks as always to Steph Animal for the theme to the podcast. I will see you next time with a regular podcast timeline episode.